Greetings, Dr. Beckett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast. Theorizing that one could time travel within his own lifetime, Dr. Sam Beckett stepped into the Quantum Leap Accelerator and vanished. He awoke to find himself trapped in the past, facing mirror images that were not his own and driven by an unknown force to change history for the better. His only guide on this journey is Al, an observer from his own time, who appears in the form of a hologram that only Sam can see and hear. And so Dr. Beckett finds himself leaping from life to life, striving to put right what once went wrong, and hoping each time that his next leap will be the leap home. are listening to the Quantum Leap Podcast. This is episode 74, A Leap for Lisa. Oh, boy. God, I love you, Bingo. Bingo? Bango. Bongo. Mmm. May I come in? Sorry, didn't mean to startle you. I'm Hugh Dobbs, uh, Commander Hugh Dobbs. May not be much of a sailor, but I'm one hell of a criminal defense lawyer. Criminal defense lawyer? Well, you don't exactly need a divorce attorney, Anson. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Weren't you expecting me? Yes, I was. I just, uh, I'm still a little groggy from, you know, waking up in the middle of, of a dream. I leaped into the middle of a dream. Well, why don't you tell me what you remember about Saturday night? Saturday, Saturday night. Which Saturday night? June the 22nd, 1957. The night you're accused of raping and murdering Commander Riker's wife? Oh, darling, what are you going to do? I don't know. Well, I do. If they don't find Marcy's killer, then I'll testify. What are you going to tell them? The truth, that Jack was TDY Saturday. And I spent the night with you. You're married? Yes, so is my husband. But it hasn't stopped him from landing in every blind from here to Norway. That's adultery. Oh, I know. It could end both our careers. But we don't have a choice if it's the only way to prove that you didn't kill her. I know why I'm here. To prove my innocence without you testifying and ruining our careers. Lisa's really something, isn't she, Sam? Where the hell have you been? Yes, I've been in the, in the waiting room. What do you mean you've been in the waiting room? Yeah. I've been here for hours. I leaped in hours ago. Hey, have you looked in the mirror? You haven't looked in the mirror yet, have you? Huh? Look in the mirror. Ain't that a kick in the butt? You leaped into me as a kid. What's it? June 25th. 
I never stood trial. See, Lisa told Commander, uh, my defense attorney, Commander, what Dobbs. was his name? Dobbs. Yeah. Hell of a nice guy. She told him that I was with her on the night of the murder. And then when Lisa was killed, he told her story to the Navy and convinced them to drop the charges. So you didn't leap in to save me because Lisa already did it. God love her. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, what? Uh... I wanted to ask Ziggy what the odds are that you're going to be court-martialed. I told you they never press yeah, charges. Well, I know. Just, why don't you just ask him, though? Three to one. And that you'll be convicted? Even, even money, Sam. Yeah. Sam, what's going on here? Ah, oh, Al. <sighs> I changed history. I thought I was here to prove your innocence. So I told Lisa not to say anything to Commander Dobbs, so... She never told him that she was your alibi. We got deep trouble here, Sam. The odds of my getting convicted are 92% now, and they're going up. Now there's a 96% chance I'm convicted. 97, geez, 98, 99. For God's sake, stop it. 100. Yes, there is a 100% certainty that Ensign Calavici will be found guilty and executed in the gas chamber. Why are you staring at me like that, Samuel? Where'd you get that hand link? And where's Al? Hey guys, it's the Quantum Leap Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> it's me. I'm I'm a very young Al Calavici. <laughs> What you people at home can't tell is that I'm actually moving my mouth and saying those words, but it's it's Allison's gravelly owl voice coming out of my face. Wow, it's it's uncanny. I know I haven't been smoking cigars yet, but it just sounds like I have. Hey everyone, I'm Christopher DeFolkis. I'm Allison Fregler. And I'm Matt Dale. <laughs> Well, of course, we're talking about the season four finale, A Leap for Lisa, in which a lot of gratuitous Al voice was used for no good reason. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, guys, I'm I'm just, I'm kind of shocked and stunned and um, amazed that here we are. Uh, we covered an entire season. Wow. This is the first, yeah, we covered the entire third season since Albie asked us to um, take over as hosts. Fourth season. Of the show. This like, is season four. This is season four, dude. Season four. Yeah. He doesn't even, even know where we're at. He thinks that we're going to be doing Leap Back next. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Maybe I should edit that out anyway. No, that was good. That's good. It's good stuff. It was a fine observation. Actually, you know, I was, I was saying season four, but <laughs> Allison was uh, looping wrong, and she said season three, and that's what was coming out oh, of my face. Oh, messed it up in the ADR. I'm sorry. <laughs> No, but what an accomplishment. 
That's great. Yeah, we should be yeah. pleased. I know we, we covered a whole season, and no one has chased us out of town with torches and pitchforks yet. So. Yet. And I say yet. Season five is yet to come. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's going to be good. It's going to be so good. You know what else is really good? Everybody uh, has been asking for more interviews, and I'm proud to announce that we are featuring an interview in this show with actor Jeff Corbett, who played Chip Ferguson in this episode. Yay! Yay. I'm very excited. Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing this. Yeah, we're really glad that he was available to come and talk to us about this episode, and I had a real blast talking with him, so we're going to bring that to you later on after the break. Stay tuned for that. And after that, we'll be hearing from QLP announcer Zoe Dean, who also happens to be our resident Roddy McDowell expert. To give us an overview of Roddy's career, Roddy features prominently in this episode, so if there was ever a time to indulge in our Roddy love this is it, and we have just the person to do it. So stay tuned to hear Zoe wax poetic about Roddy. Look, retrospectives, interviews, this episode has it all. I just wanted to say real quick, uh, a shout out and thanks to Hayden for getting that interview for us. Yeah, nice work. Thank you very much. Yeah, Hayden's been working uh, double time for this stuff, and he got us Jeff, and there are other interviews that uh, we're going to be announcing as the shows go on. So everybody who's been clamoring for more behind-the-scenes stuff, for more of the guest stars to come and talk about their time on the show, uh, we're bringing it to you. So um, keep on listening to the podcast, and you'll keep hearing all that good behind-the-scenes gossip about how... You know, Scott Bakula is basically the nicest guy on earth. <laughs> it's the same with everyone. What if someone came in and they had like a terrible experience? They were like, let me tell you about that Scott Bakula. <laughs> he just, I, I wish he would have just screwed somebody over at some point. We will find somebody. If someone, I, oh, my heart couldn't handle it. If someone said, oh, <laughs> one time there was like uh, an article I saw where someone was making fun of his hair at an awards ceremony. And I was like, oh. Heartbroken. <laughs> it's the meanest <laughs> thing I've ever seen written about Scott Bakula. <laughs> we need to get hold of that kid from Iman because I I reckon he's got some goss on Scott. He he's probably like, yeah, that guy was a dick. I hated playing his son. <laughs> that guy was the worst to work with. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be so mean. No, we love Scott. He didn't really die and come back in that movie. He's not as talented as Dean Stockwell. In this episode, he really did die and come back. Well done, Dean. There's nothing Dean can't do. We always say there's nothing Scott can't do, but apparently Dean is uh, a lich Oh my now. god. He's back from the dead. If you want to talk about showcasing Dean Stockwell's talents, like, this episode, oh man, it was so good for him. It was great. Yeah. Well, yeah, why don't we get into, give me your initial impressions of A Leap for Lisa Alice. Oh, I hated it so much. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great episode. It's a, one of the best. Really good. What did you think about it, Matt? Yeah, I I want to be... Co you know I always want to be controversial at these kind of points. These fan favorites, I, I go in there wanting to hate them. I try and find something to dislike. <sighs> but no, I love this one. I absolutely adore it. I, I was going to say I have nothing bad to say about that, but that wouldn't be true. Um, but, <laughs> but, but there's very little bad to say about this. It's Yeah, it's a classic. Love it. And wow, I'm sort of in the middle on this one. Mm. I can tell you this. When when I first saw it initially in first run, I wasn't crazy about it. And I couldn't put my my finger on why. Of course, there's a big bombshell in this episode that kind of uh, distracted me from the rest of the episode because my leaper brain got going. And we'll talk about that. And you guys already know what I'm mm. talking about. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> now, was this set up in the mummy episode? Yes. Yes, it Very was. <laughs> and I don't care what you say, it was. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I just remember coming away from it feeling like I should have liked it more than I actually did. But 
having rewatched it now, I think two or three times for this podcast, because I watched it once before I spoke to Jeff, and then I watched it a couple of times over this last week, and I like it more and more every time. So I went from sort of not really liking it to feeling overwhelmed by how much stuff we have to unpack here, because mm. this is a packed freaking episode. There's so much going on. Oh, yeah. You know, I feel like it's, it's for a season finale, they really pulled out all the stops. So yeah, where to start? <laughs> Why don't we start at the beginning? Well, if we start at the beginning, we've we've got to talk about Terry Farrell being apparently naked on the beach. Yes. Although, actually, Chris, you only ever watch on a really tiny screen, don't you? So you probably don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, here's the thing. Uh, you know, sometimes we have um, episode goofs listed here. Um, and the first thing I, I wrote is weird nude suits don't hold up in HD. Yeah. They didn't look good in SD either. It doesn't match your no. skin tone. It's so weird. <laughs> They, they got a flesh-coloured bikini for her. It just, it, it was someone else's flesh. You know what I think it is? I don't think it's a bikini. I think it's, like, um some pasties that they've put on. But, yeah, they're, they're like, much darker than her skin tone. Yes. And even in SD. And, like, the, it's not backlit enough to not see it. I think maybe they thought that that would cover for it a little bit, but uh, it's just when I first saw it, I did think she was wearing like just like a bikini that was a little bit darker than her skin tone. I didn't even realize she was supposed to be naked till the close up since like, oh, okay, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's funny that you say that because I remember it being um, extremely silhouetted looking on the network feed when I watched it in SD um, on a tube TV, you know, back in the nineties, and. I want you guys to keep something in mind. When we watch Leaping of the Shrew, which is going to be in two episodes from this one, there has been some criticism of the HD transfer in which scenes that are supposed to take place at night, you can tell are, you know, shot in the daytime. Oh, did they not color correct them the same? That's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that in there's there's some kind of weird camera trick that they were able to do to make it look like night when it wasn't that just doesn't translate into an HD transfer. And I'm thinking that maybe this this sort of blatant um, – it, it's just so obvious that she's wearing this weird suit. I didn't realize it the first time I watched it. And it's just screaming now. It's so evident. So I'm just wondering if this is just a product of RHD times. I'm going to be brutally honest with you. There's definitely an issue here with um, with the color correction. It's not it's not right for this episode, and it's not right for a lot of the HD ones. But in complete honesty, as a what 13 year old boy, I must have been at the time. I distinctly remember me and a friend of mine having a discussion about this the following day at school. I'm not proud of it. But <laughs> you were 13. It's okay. <laughs> Before yes. these HD masters were out, I noticed it too. Like, yeah. it's, it's just in HD, it's even more apparent, but it definitely was not hidden in the SD version. My friend was convinced that you could see everything. Um, and that, that, <laughs> that darker patch around her waist was actually a, a darker patch, ah. as opposed to any kind of bikini bottoms or anything. So th <laughs> that, there was that would have been a lot going on down there. That's what it was. <laughs> I'm so glad I wasn't the one to bring this up. <laughs> that was the argument that I was having um, at the time, and HD I think has proved me right. But definitely at the time in, in 93, 94, you could definitely tell it was not the same color as the rest of her skin. 
All right. Well, you know, you two perverts, I was talking about the dream aspect. <laughs> but there are definitely some, like, there are definitely some color correction issues, though. Yeah. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. I will say, like, in multiple episodes. Yeah. And, it's, like, it's the. Much worse in HD. Yeah. It's pretty common, too, for, like, uh, HD transfers to not have different color corrections that they do in on tape later. Like, uh, for instance, a lot of night scenes, especially in earlier episodes of Quantum Leap, are tinted blue in the SD versions, but they're not in the uh the hd versions and uh sometimes it's fine it's just not blue but it's still like darkened enough but uh yeah i think it's more obvious in leaping of the shrew that they didn't do the same corrections that they did well all of um is she or isn't she naked aside (laughs) what do you guys think about sam leaping into a dream this feels to me like they thought it was gonna be a different lead-in and then they decided to do it differently when they actually got to the episode Maybe, uh, well, uh, usually they do just film it, like, when they're filming it, though, so I don't know. Maybe they just wanted, like, a scene like that, but they realize they're like, well, we can't, if he's supposed to be, like, under suspicion here, he wouldn't be out in, on the beach. Yeah, and, and I think they do such a good job. One, one of my favorite things about the first ten minutes of this episode is they do such a good job of slowly eking out the plotline. You don't find out for the first couple of minutes that all right, there's some kind of legal things going on, his lawyer's shown up, then you find out a little bit later that there's a murder involved, and it's not for ages that you find out that Al is the Lee P. So they have to they they can't leap him straight into the middle of a, a murder or a trial or anything, because the whole plot is built up so slowly and carefully during the first act. Um that they've got to do something to give you a cliffhanger at the end of the previous episode that they can then just crap all over and say oh and he's awake and and now we start the episode i think they wanted to show us like uh you know some like classic al stuff you know like getting with a lady and uh and they were like there's not really a good place to insert this here maybe kind of do it this way yeah i don't know and i'm gonna go out and say that it was very deliberate because I think that Don, who wrote this, Don Belisario, series creator, wanted to maybe expand our expectations of what a leap could be. Mm-hmm. So it's signaling sort of some of the changes that we're going to see in season five. He's leaping into a dream. This is not something you would normally see. So maybe get used to or get more comfortable with differences in the way we will present this from the ways we presented this before. Hmm. Good point. This is something that they could have used, perhaps, in the episode Dweems! <laughs> um, if they were going to do something like that, playing with this, like, is it a dream? Is it reality? Whatever. Like, they could have they could have done something like that, like, in a whole episode, if that was what they were trying yeah. to do. I guess you could argue the Boogeyman that- might be, <laughs> might be yeah. that kind of example, but... I don't know if it, they were really experimenting that much. I find it interesting. It just doesn't really go anywhere he just notes it that that's kind of weird and that's where that ends right and i just think that they're trying to prime you for kind of weird from here on out (laughs) because as i said season five anyway (laughs) um i just thought it was really an interesting shift and like you said matt it surprised me how well Every element of this script led into every other element of this script and i have to say Larry Brandenburg had so much to do with that because he was just such a likable character. He played uh, the commander, the defense attorney, Dobbs, mm-hmm. yeah. who was defending Mingo. And um, there's just something so 
I don't know, he's just like easy and comfortable and, you know, fun to watch. And he, I thought that because he was an authority figure at first that he was going to be like a hard ass or a dick. Mm. And he wasn't. He was just like a really cool dude. Yeah. And it just, it, I don't know, just it, it, it helped sort of ease into the flow of the episode. And it wasn't what you were expecting. It was sort of counterintuitive. But I guess if he was there to, you know, defend him for a murder, he would be on his side. So, One thing that, that Quantum Leap, I think, did very well is uh, portraying uh, military characters in a more interesting way. Because I can't tell you how many times I've, been, I've watched something and then you see someone come out in a, in a military uniform and I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to be so <laughs> bored. <Yeah. laughs> um, but they find ways to create interesting and different characters. So it's not just the, the typical archetype you might see, which is nice. They do. Um, and you can tell that this is, um, that this is a show uh, by someone who uh, was in the military because they, they distinguish certain things. Like, they're like, yeah, okay, so he's like, he's this kind of hotshot uh, Hollywood lawyer type, but then he's also, he like, like kind of different things. That's a good observation. And I'm wondering if Don didn't run into people like this when he was in active duty. Because you can tell someone who was in the military wrote this. There's a genuineness about everything that, that comes across here. And um, you can tell it was written with fondness mm -hmm. yeah. in a lot of ways, especially this stuff in the officers club and uh, all the stuff about how they interact in the barracks. Like Sam is just like, I, like you know, you're not, you're not allowed to have alcohol in here, right? And it's like we never paid attention to stuff like that. Yeah, you can tell yeah. it's it's written by a Navy guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I just think that it's it's hilarious that an ensign has, what are those quarters? Those are bigger than quarters on the Enterprise D. That bingo head. <laughs> he had like six rooms and a bath. Yeah, I found it weird that like, so so young Al is having this affair with this nurse, and he's keeping her picture on his dresser, just all obvious. Like they're supposed to, it's supposed to be a secret, right? It's clearly the world's worst kept secret. Because <laughs> they kind of an open secret. Everyone seems to know. I. This is where. I have a little bit of a problem with the episode, and it's just the fact that Al is fooling around with a married woman. Does that surprise anyone? Well, yeah, why do you have a problem with What's, that? He's yeah. always doing shit like that. <laughs> That's classic Al. <laughs> when did we see him fooling around with someone who was married? Didn't he? He had to seduce uh, Bartlett's wife in the, the in Starcrossed. <laughs> Good call. Yeah, I think he was he was fooling around when he was married too. I'm sure he's yeah told stories that oh, allude to that. I'd, I'd forgotten about Bartlett's wife, but it still just it feels right to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't I don't. Th it, 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 why would it matter to him if they were married or not? Like he's always cheating, sleeping around, whatever. I didn't question it, but I mean, like it was. Especially, like, them being in the military together and in that school, like, it was a bigger deal, you know? Especially in the 50s, like, that this was an affair with a married woman, and that's part of the reason why, um, you know, I, it, one detail I really liked when they, they eventually got to the part where, um, where Lisa dies and Al finds out that Sam got her not to testify before she passed away, Al's first reaction isn't concern for himself he says, Well, I'm glad. I mean, you're glad I just blew your alibi. Yeah, but there won't be anybody gossiping over Lisa's grave this time. And I thought that was a really great detail. 
I love that whole scene because we know from MIA that Dean is really good at doing the heavy emotional stuff. But after the recording of that episode, he asked that they just never make him do anything like that again. And I, I love that scene precisely because it just allows him to, to dip his toe back into the water. It's quite a chilling moment. But then he goes back to being fun, happy, zany owl. It's, an, it's a really nice moment for him as an actor. I agree. There are questions I have, though. And you're getting into one of the biggest ones I have. What is Sam doing there? Al says you're not here to save Lisa. And obviously she already died. If he hadn't inadvertently changed the original history to put Al in the gas chamber, things would have played out exactly as they had. And nothing would have happened to change the timeline. So what is Sam's original mission? That's my first question. Then I have another question that goes, a bigger question that goes on top of that. What do you guys think Sam was doing there to begin with? Surely he is there to save Lisa. Is is Al not just wrong about that? It's called a leap for Lisa. <laughs> yeah. I think that has more to do with the way it plays out. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to say, like, it wasn't originally for Lisa, it might have been just to prove that, like, Chip did it. Obviously, he wasn't caught in the original history. Yeah, yeah that's what I was thinking, too. And Chip is a whole other can of worms that we can get into. But look, if we if we stick with this and figuring out like it, so at least can can we agree that it it's sort of unclear what Sam was doing there? It's just that it got flubbed up in in those initial stages. Yeah, because we never get the chance to find out. Yeah, and if you're saying like the beginning in the dream is start the start of like we're going to start doing some weird things with leaps or kind of change things around a little bit, maybe that was the idea. Like he was supposed to figure out how they were going to leap young owl into himself and then save lisa retroactively or maybe i mean they do get into i realize we're getting into a lot of topics that like we want to talk about a little deeper here but um the whole like success has nothing to do with leaping thing maybe it was a failed leap he was supposed to save her and then that's how they 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 fix it in the end but then if success has nothing to do with leaping why doesn't he leap out as soon as lisa dies because fate, time, yeah. whatever, nah. knew that he was going to figure out how to fix it. Or because he's leaping himself and decided he didn't want to leave yet subconsciously. Mm. Maybe it was to ensure that Al found out that Chip did it. Al's, I guess, lived with this all his life without knowing that uh, Chip was the one that, that was responsible, right? Holy crap. That scene when like Chip is explaining what happened and they keep cutting to Al as he's listening and he finds out his friend did it. And he let him die. And when he says, I never let you take the fall for me, Bingo. I just wouldn't. Like, oh my God, what a stab to the gut. No! <laughs> he knows that his friend d would do that the whole time. Right. It's like, I never let you. Yeah, but apparently you did. You did. Yeah. You know, yeah. But, and maybe Al needed to, to know that, to have some closure. It might not have been an easy for it, thing for him to hear, but maybe that was a reason for the leap. And kudos to Jeff, and I'm not just saying this because I got to talk to him and he was super cool. Um, the way that he played Chip, I don't think that you ever disliked Chip, even no. though I walked away saying, is Chip really a good guy? I mean, he seems like a good guy, seems like a good friend, but he did let Al take the fall. So I, I, I don't know, but I I still like him. Yeah, I know. It's There's something about his kind of the wide eyes. He's He's very innocent, even though clearly he's not. But he comes across as this, this kind of, yeah, lovable idiot who just happens to have killed someone. <laughs> well, he's also, like, a character that, like, 
he has accidentally killed someone. And he's still going around like, yeah, let's have a party. Let's get some beer. Let's hang out. Like, (laughs) it makes you wonder, like, about him morally. Obviously, like, he became a coward and let him take the fall for him. But he also, like, does not seem that bothered by the fact that he killed someone. He's buried that shit. Yeah. The one scene that I was really trying to parse Chip's motivation was the one in the officer's club. When he's talking to Dobbs about what really happened... And you can tell he's telling him the truth to a point, but just omitting everything that he did. And it's almost like he's doing his best to try to save Al, yet not deflect any real suspicion from Al. Yeah, I don't think he wanted him to take the fall for him, but he would let him take the fall if that meant that he didn't get caught. Yes. Yeah, Chip, very confusing character. Yeah, it was weird that line where he says it was like an old black and white film. Yeah. It's the 50s, like, the films are black and white. <laughs> I hadn't picked up on that. Oh, well, that's pretty good. The way they shot that, it was almost like, you get it, you get it. It was, that, that line seemed superfluous to me just because it was almost pointing out the flashback sequence, that dream sort of look that they had. For her running on the beach and cracking her head open. And my God, a lot of people were cracking their skulls open on rocks in this episode, weren't they? That's what happened to uh, Commander Riker when he fell down the cliff. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, his wife falls down. She fell down and hit her head on a rock. And so is Chip really guilty of anything? Maybe manslaughter, I guess. Right? Because it's not like it was premeditated. Yeah. Like, he doesn't actually rape her either, right? Like, they're just fooling around and then she slips. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's what it looks like to me. But uh, but then Commander Riker saying, I watched you for two minutes raping her on the beach. The, but she doesn't seem to be acting like he he raped her, though. Like, if they were cutting around it or something, it seemed like she was just, like, drunk and kind of out of it. Just seemed like a, a bad scene, man. Yeah, I mean, you could say that that's rape as far as consent goes, but, uh, she, you know, like, it just seemed like they were fooling around and then she slipped. Right. Do you mind if I get back to the second bigger question that I had from before? Success has nothing to do with leaping? No, 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 no. That's that's a, that's a third discussion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> My second question, it still has to stem from the first act. So Sam doesn't know what he's doing there. So what exactly are the protocols for a leap? Like, how can Al leave Sam to fend for himself for hours? Literally hours while he just dicks around in the waiting room. He was hanging with himself. He was having some me time. Right, but shouldn't it be like, okay, well, Sam has leapt in and maybe we should touch base and establish what he might be there to do because it might be urgent. Like, you know, it could be so urgent that you could wind up in the fucking gas chamber urgent, you know? Shouldn't that be the default? He doesn't know that. (laughs) Yeah, you would think. You would think, Al, because, like, from Al's perspective, he was fine. Because, like, in the original history, he was fine. He wasn't, like, he didn't go to trial or anything. But you would think he would try to check into what was happening, especially when it ties into his personal timeline, because anything could be changed. Exactly. Just two minutes to pop in and say, look, don't do anything, just go and have a drink, I'll be back later. Or even two more minutes to say, don't do anything, go have a drink, and oh, by the way, um, you know, make sure that Lisa doesn't get in the car. Yeah. Yeah, he's too busy hanging with his friends to remember Lisa's death. Like, that's a... He came yeah. in on the flight line. Pretty messed up moment. <laughs> yeah. So, it just struck me as that, you know, it's so loosey-goosey back at the project sometimes that 
you just have to sit back and say, how did something like this happen? How did something like this falter there? This would not have happened if Edward St. John the fifth <laughs> was running the show back there. Let me tell you. <laughs> Rather. Hmm. Was he, he, he just was, was extra British, huh? <laughs> super British. Roddy McDowell's always super British. Matt, did this come off like Brit- British guy written by American? Yes, absolutely. And it doesn't bother me because that, that happens so much on American TV. I just find it adorable when a British guy shows up and, of course, he's in like a, a three-piece and you kind of expect him to actually show up with, with the hand link in one hand and a cup of tea in the other with his little finger out, maybe maybe a, maybe a pocket watch. Um, but, but it doesn't matter. He's cool. He's, he's like a British superhero. Roddy McDowell is so awesome. Like, he's never yeah. unwelcome. And Roddy is one of the few people that could have pulled it off because, yeah, it is, in some ways, Sinjin is quite badly written in that he's very stereotypically British. But mm-hmm. Roddy just manages to pull that kind of character off. I am in love with everything about this character. This whole, like, there's so many questions about this. First of all, like, what a great idea. Yeah. To like they're like, let's kill off Al. What would the what would the project be like if Al wasn't there? So there's this other observer there. Edward St. John the Fifth. Edward Sinjin the Fifth. Um I've never heard of Saint John pronounced Sinjin, but apparently that's Yeah, that's a British thing. Okay. I asked another British friend of mine if that was a thing, and he seemed utterly confused what I was talking about. And so <laughs> I was like, alright. It's uh, archaic. Yeah, it doesn't really happen anymore, but it's yeah, it's legit. I believe there's a character in Star Trek V by the same name, played by David Warner. I'm pretty sure his name's Sinjin. David Warner, who was in Star Trek V for all of three seconds, even though he was in the title, like he, <laughs> he was up there because yeah. they cut his entire scene. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Where he explained why the name was pronounced that way, I'm sure. <laughs> With his umbrella and his cup of tea. <laughs> I only knew from the script for Leap for Lisa, it's like pronounced Sinjin. It's like, what? What in the world? Do you think that Roddy just came in and, and did that? I think it's just in no, the script. It, it says it in the script that that's how it's pronounced. I guess because oh, okay. he's so, supposed to be kind of fuddy-duddy old-fashioned. I guess that's the idea. Samuel. Samuel. Oh my gosh, they reveal Samuel. so many things. Just in the he's he's only in like three scenes, a very short amount of this episode. Yeah, right. It's, it struck me for such a big change, just how little screen time Roddy actually got in this. Yeah, but he leaves such a mark. Yeah, they mention like so many things that tell you about what Al has done and, uh, and, and what is affected uh, by him being gone. Like the computer is named Alpha because Al named the computer Ziggy. Um, and the computer's back to a he, which seems to indicate the, the sex change had something to do with Al, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. This is the first time Sam refers to Ziggy as a she. Is it really? Yeah, they've gone the whole season with us knowing that she's voiced by uh, Deborah Pratt, but they've been referring to her as a he the whole time. And it's only when Ziggy becomes Alpha that Sam refers to her as a she. And oh. yeah, it's very, very weird that they choose that moment where Alpha is a he to point out that Ziggy's meant to be a she. They could have just slipped that under the radar a little bit in a different episode. But yeah, they seem to call attention to it. It's a mess. It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was the first time. Yeah. It's It yeah. seems wild that they went a whole season where, I mean, I guess because it was just kind of fluid. It was just whatever. And then after at season five, they're like, it's just she now. Just she. Yeah, I mean, it's parallel and it's hybrid. So, so deal. 
But going back to your point, yeah. So it, it does seem like Al maybe had something to do with the sex change and the naming and... He was like, we need it to be a girl. With- <laughs> <laughs> need it to be a girl. Bubble call him he. Need, need it to have large, <laughs> large microchips. <laughs> <laughs> Macrochips, if you will. <laughs> hey, wow. <laughs> Give her some big cassabas. <laughs> Does that also mean that Samuel used to call himself Samuel until Al came along and started calling him Sam? Samuel, anything you say... And don't call me Samuel. Last person to do that was my great aunt Tilly. My great aunt Tilly. <laughs> and yet, apparently he gets away with it. One thing I heard about Edward Sinjin V that I absolutely adore. <laughs> so there was this thing going around. I have no idea if it's true. It probably isn't. Maybe you could enlighten us, Chris. So someone oh, said <laughs> someone said that they um they were writing a Quantum Leap novel or they had talked to someone involved with it. And one of the things they had talked about was part of uh, Sinjin's backstory mm-hmm. is that he eventually, like, he's the one that leads the evil leapers. All right. This I don't know anything about. Definitely John Peel, who wrote Independence. Um, Your favorite Quantum Leap novel, Alison. Yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> was what one of the novels that he pitched was called England Swings and was going to surround the the backstory of uh, Edward Sinjin. Mm-hmm. But I yeah I spoke to John about that at some length and I don't recall him mentioning about the evil leaper aspect, which isn't to say that that wouldn't have been an element of the plot. But I'm that's that's news to me. I mean, it's possible this is completely fabricated. It's interesting to think about. Because, like, who is this guy? What is his backstory? We really don't know. And I remember reading about, um, in your book, where John Peel talked about that potential book that he wanted to do, which had nothing to do with that. It was just a backstory about him, which which would have been interesting. Yeah, and I mean, just because Zoe was British, Sinjin is British, maybe? I don't know. Well, yeah, we all know each right? other. <laughs> yeah, what if he, yeah, what if he, what if he created the evil leapers and he'd like infiltrated the project in some way and like without Al there, he was able to worm his way in? Well, yeah, you, you always trust a British guy. <laughs> <laughs> You're so proper. Yes. Well, there's, there's that line in Buffy, I think, that like, aren't British people gentler than normal people? <laughs> They're always wearing those three piece suits. They have to be. They might get mucked up. Yeah, exactly. What I really, what I think was one of the chief missed opportunities of this episode, though, is as you're having Sam struggle to not forget his history with Al, and he's telling Sinjin that I don't remember you, and, you know, Roddy is explaining a little bit about his backstory, basically for the benefit of the audience, who might be lost at this point. It would have been nice to have Sam sort of have some kind of memories of him slot in. Oh, yeah, yes. yeah. And say, oh, yeah, this is how we met. And, you know, like a believable history between the two instead of who are you, you fuddy-duddy jerk who I don't like. And even if you are a fuddy-duddy jerk who I don't like, maybe I needed you for the project. And maybe we have a more contentious relationship. Maybe we're not bros like me and Al. You know, but just give some sort of context for why he is the observer for Project Quantum Leap in this timeline. You know what I found very, very interesting about uh, the whole memories during this leap is that Sam is forgetting Al, which means like he, his, when history changes, it changes his memory too. Yeah. But Al remembers 
the original histories. Like when they had like mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, honeymoon express and they had uh, history change in front of him with that judge, he remembers what's going on and he seems to like to know things other people don't. So why is it that Al remembers and Sam forgets? Yeah, I I think that's that's tackled in at least one of the novels that um Al is kind of uh yeah, he's able to remember multiple timelines, just him and Ziggy. Yeah, that I posited that in foreknowledge. Was that you? What a horrific thing to know, <laughs> right? It's yeah. so sad. Yeah. Does Al remember the timeline where he dies? <laughs> it's awful. My question is, and this is going to come up in Lee, Har- Lee Harvey Oswald too, but my question is, how is Al or Bingo remembering anything now except for being in the waiting room at this point in history? Because obviously Sam is now taking his place and they're talking about, oh, I did this and they're going to come and do that. And they're going to, how would Al know that they're coming to give him a party if it was Sam there all this time now in this new history? That I guess it goes back to Al remembering both histories. Exactly. Exactly. Which I guess maybe I wrote in my book, so. But that was so long. That was that was a million years ago. Some somebody wrote it in one of the books. Yeah, don't hold me to that. But at the time the episode was written, I, I mean that's kind of a, a retcon from one of the authors. At the time the episode was written, you're right. It doesn't really make any sense in context. I I mean the thing that they write in the books has something to do with some connection to Ziggy that Al has is why he can remember all of this stuff and like it's it's all very interesting and I guess there would have to be some sort of like loophole as to why he would remember certain things because that's how he helped Sam on the leaps, like telling him what the original histories were and stuff like that. But it, when you get the deeper and deeper you get into it, the more it's like, oh my god, this is it's fascinating and tragic all at the same time. Just imagine every episode ends with Al looking at the handling and looking just looking really confused at Sam and saying, "Well, I don't, I don't get it. Nothing's changed." Yeah, <laughs> because all he remembers is the new timeline. It's like. I, I don't get it. You've, you've, you've done nothing. That Everyone survived anyway. And then he leaps out. Good point, man. Fair point. Well, let's put a pin in that. Let's see how they explore it when, when we get to the books. Let's see how they explore it in the books. We'll keep that as one of the chief questions. Like, what does Al remember? What doesn't he remember? And how did authors finesse that, if they even did? There is a scene in this episode where... Uh, Sam is listening to a very romantic song. Allegheny Moon, I think is what it's called. Allegheny Moon, I need your love. And he says in voiceover, I was afraid to go to sleep. Afraid that I'd forget Al. Lose him forever. And it was like, oh my god. And all I could think of during that scene was, it, it, that was the second scene with that sweet radio. What, what kind of radio was that? <laughs> you're, you're focusing on the radio? He's afraid he's going to lose Al forever. Hi, Allison. I'm Christopher DeFilippis. Have you met me? <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't want to go to sleep or he'll forget him. Oh, it was so good. And there a dozen slash fictions were born. <laughs> Even if you take away, it, it just seemed very romantic, but even yeah. if you take that away into just a friendship context, the fact that he's so afraid of his own memory just leaving him, mm. it's great. Like, they don't really talk that much about, you know, the ramifications of Swiss cheesing and leaping and changing histories, and it's all sort of uh, insane. You might be putting a finger on why I sort of was meh about this episode. 
when I first saw it. Because, yeah, something like that I should have felt more urgency for. You're right. Uh, this time, I wasn't looking at radios back then. So that, the radio had nothing mm-hmm. to do with it originally. But maybe it's because in the end, you always know that Dean is coming back. And this to me, maybe these are final thoughts, but not not really. I'm just I'm just sort of figuring this out now. It can't be final thoughts. Exactly. But I really... Yeah. I think it's that we're 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 straying into gimmicky stuff. So this is not so much a dire situation as okay, a complication that we're gonna invent that you know that we're gonna get out of somehow. So it's just a matter of going through the motions of getting out of that complication. Have you seen Quantum Leap before? Well that's like any time they say Sam's gonna die. You know he's yeah. not gonna die, yeah. but it's just part of So that's um, so forgive me for not having my heart broken when he thought he was gonna lose Al forever because we knew he wasn't. It's like you've never seen 90s TV before. (laughs) Or any TV, for that matter. (laughs) Well, put yourself in that situation. Like, you know that your mind is going to betray you. And if you don't remember them, you don't remember that you need to save them. You don't remember, like, this important person in your life. I, I, again, I had a a certain little reveal at the end of my book that sort of played with that, that idea. So, I mean, I get it. It just didn't affect me in this episode. I'm sorry. You've got no soul. Can you ever forgive me, Alice? <laughs> I did want to talk about, uh, real quick, before we get into some more Al stuff, because there's so much good Al stuff. I wanted to talk about Charles Rocket in this episode. Mm. As Riker? Yeah. Yeah. Commander Riker. Commander Riker. I was looking. He did not pull the Riker maneuver once in this oh, entire episode. I was oh, really, nuts. really waiting for it. Didn't do the Riker lean, nothing. Um, nothing. So this is his second appearance on Quantum Leap. He was in A Little Miracle uh, in a very comedic role. Um, this is not comedic no. at all. This is a complete opposite. He's a very, very screwed up character. Yes. <laughs> it, it's chilling. Um, and he was so good at it, too. I think, like... A lot of people forget like how good Charles Rocket was at very serious stuff because he's so known for, for comedy. But um, when they're doing the trial and they're talking about him watching his wife being raped and murdered. You watched a man rape your wife for a minute or two and didn't even yell stop? No, sir. For God's sake, Commander, why not? Because she deserved it. Like, oh my God. Yeah, I mean- ah. The sleaze factor just got turned up to 11 at that point. Both actors are so good during that scene. Brandenburg was great because when he's yelled, what do you mean? Hey, hey stop. stop that. And that was like, uh, you know, it's very bracing. Yeah. Very good. Just watching those two work together. And the way that Charles Rocket, because, I mean, this is a very sort of mustache twirly kind of villain, but he sells it 100%. I'm never rolling my eyes. He's just standing there watching Sam smoking, just staring at like he just wants to kill him. Like <laughs> you're like, oh man. But it, like <sighs> things still went badly for his wife in the fixed timeline though, didn't it? She's still stuck with like an abusive husband that smacks her around. He smacks her around and she's initiating all of the ensigns that come in under his command. Yeah, it seemed like she was doing some some fucked up stuff too, but uh, like, it just seems like it didn't really work out any better for her in the timeline where she lived. I, you know what, the thing is, it, it's such a complicated character because the way he tells it to Sam, the relationship being the way it was, was consensual between them. You're sick. So was Marcy. 
That was the beauty of our relationship. We were both equally perverted. And when there's equal perversion, there's no perversion. Just pleasure. Now she's gone. It's all gone. And I'll never find another woman to love me like that. Ever. It's something that she liked to do, and it's something that he got off watching her do. I don't think he got off on it, though. I think he would follow her around and then beat her for doing it. That was, wasn't that what they were getting at? Like, they were both messed up? No, and... because it's, it's, he's saying two perversions cancel each other yeah. out. I'll never find another woman to love me like that again. Okay. Like, there was some basis for that fucked up dynamic that both mm. of them got something out of. Even though it was extremely abusive and, you know, he's beating her up regularly, if Chip can be believed. Hmm. Well, we saw it in the flashback. I mean, yeah, Chip could be telling it incorrectly. I'm not saying that he isn't. I'm just saying that, yeah, I mean, it's just one part of one larger, more complex and screwed up, profoundly, disturbingly screwed up relationship between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Whew. Hmm. Heavy. It was some serious stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I got to take a breath. (laughs) Yeah. But I will say it was a good performance because it was creepy. I like Charles Rocket a lot, but he was like very creepy in this episode. Just slimy. And even the woman who played Marcy, she had one scene basically where you saw her close up and she even nailed it because she goes up to the Corvette thinking that it's bingo. And the second that she sees that it's Chip, her face just drops. And then you get to see her, you know, fall down and smash her head on a rock. Yeah, when he's telling that story, like, uh, the performance by Jeff Corbett talking about uh, what happened. I offered her a drink. And I asked her where she wanted me to take her. She said, somewhere where she could run naked. That's what she said. Somewhere where she could run naked. Somewhere where she could dance naked, and he's like in tears telling this story, <laughs> and like, and she's dancing around in, on the beach, and the creepy music that they play, and the whole thing was just very unsettling in a in a good way. The um the score for this episode is one of my favorites. Uh, it's, oh my god, it's the, beautiful. The piece they play over the uh, the credits was great. The end credits is great. The moment where Roddy McDowell shows up and there's this kind of very mysterious music. It's one of those rare episodes where there's memorable music that then doesn't get reused repeatedly for the rest of the show's run. Good job for Felton Ray Bunch. Yeah. I, yeah, I, yeah. yeah, I noticed the music in this one too. I think that part of why it stands out too is you were right. You're right, Matt. Like it, uh, they don't reuse it a lot. So yeah. it's very unique to this episode. Would you guys mind talking about some of the bigger time travel questions? This episode just brings up, again, it opens a can of worms. I seem to be saying that a lot this episode. but So their resolution to this whole situation is to, I guess, use the targeting formula that we saw in the leap back. So that's canon. That's great. To leap bingo into himself before Sam even got there and to prevent anything from happening to begin with, to Marcy, to prevent the rape. Now, this episode shows us that reality is fluid and shifts around Sam with the fact that Sinjin comes in 
once mm-hmm. Al is convicted and goes to the gas chamber. So the second they leapt Bingo back, shouldn't reality have shifted around Sam? Like, how is he even still there? My head hurts yeah. just trying to figure out how they're still standing in that room trying to parse it out when reality is completely changed. And if the bingo from the waiting room has been leapt into the younger bingo, where's the younger bingo gone? <laughs> is he now in the future? And if so, for how long? It, you, you know that scene in Back to the Future 2 where Doc draws out the timeline on a blackboard? Yeah, it's one of my favourites. Somewhere in the past, the timeline skewed into this tangent, creating an alternate 1985. I kind of feel like I need that for this. Every time I try and figure it out in my head, I end up lying down with a headache. Which tangent have we skewed into? That's what I want to know. Yeah. We need that chalkboard. You're right. (sighs) Yeah. Well, this also brings up a huge question in that if they can leap young Al into himself, (laughs) why can't they leap someone into Sam to get him back? Yes. I've been asking that question since the leap back. Yeah. Yeah. Because show, Allison. Because show. (laughs) It just doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, like, when we were talking about Leap Back, we're talking about, like, okay, are are we sending another Leaper in his place? Or what do we, like, how does that work? But, like, here they've taken someone, like, a Leapy and done it. And it's like, well, you could just switch them back, right? Yeah. You could just switch him with the person that he's replaced at that point. Yeah. They know exactly how to do it. And, like... You know, at least leap back, it was like, oh, Sam figured it out, and maybe, like, he didn't tell them before he left, which would be really, like, a bonehead move, but maybe (laughs) that's what happened, I don't know. But here, there's absolutely no reason given why this is, like, a very special circumstance that can't be repeated. Nothing? Nothing. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it's a more problematic circumstance. Like, and their plan is so, like... They're taking a leap of faith here. Leap of faith. (laughs) You meant to do that. Did you have that written down in all caps? No, I I actually (laughs) did not intend that. But that's what it is. It's a leap of faith. (laughs) Because they're like, oh, if if you just try and remember to do this, like, don't Swiss cheese this. Oh, I didn't know it was that easy. If you just say like, yeah, remember this and do it, (laughs) you'll do it. Yeah. They can now use this as a get out for every future leap now. Just uh, Sam can just sit there and kick back for a bit. We'll tell the EP what he needs to do and send him back. <laughs> right, and then apparently I'll still be here in this in this circumstance with nothing having shifted around me except for the fact that Rich Whiteside disappeared. Poor disappearing Rich Whiteside. <laughs> I bring up Rich's name because I met him twice at the Sleep conventions. And if you guys recall uh, during the Tahoe Tep show, I had mentioned that Al or that Dean screwed up Trudy's name and called her Loretta. Mm -hmm. Um, This is the episode because now I'm remembering that I've watched it a few times. Rich uh, brought in dailies that he had. And um, these are the bloopers that I remember so vividly, especially when they're in the waiting room and he says, "Um, I can't remember my sister's name. And Al says, it's Trudy, but you see he's not facing the camera at that point. (laughs) That's where he said Loretta. Because nobody could remember his sister's name. Was that in the script as well, Matt? That's what I wanted to figure out. Now that I know which script it's from, I wonder if the script was wrong or if Dean was wrong. Let's find out, because... um, Please do. When I wrote the book, I didn't have a copy of the script. There were a couple of things I knew about it, but I don't think I had a copy of the script. But I'm sure we do now, though. I know there was one script written by Donald Belisario where he says the name wrong, and I think this might be it. Um, Dean or Don? 
Well, I just think like if if it was in the script correctly and he said the wrong name, that would be something that they would correct him on. But I don't know. I guess there's been instances where they say the wrong thing and they have to dub it later. Yeah, I'm just curious to know if he was on script or if he was just being Dean. I want to say that this was a script issue. You know, I, I could see both because another thing while Matt's looking it up, I'll just expand on that story a bit. A lot of the other stuff that we saw wasn't so much bloopers as it was alternate takes. So like they had a reaction shot of Dean when Lisa's car crashed when he's saying, no, no, not again, not again. He showed a couple of different takes where he did it in a much more subdued way. And he's saying, you know, Dean being the actor that he is, knew to give them choices. Nice. So he never did the scene the same way twice. That way they would have options when they went to edit it, depending on what kind of mood they wanted to set. And one thing that always struck me, and you you won't be able to unsee this once I tell you about it, when they find Chip's cigar in the car and Al comes back, mm-hmm. they're walking away with Rich behind them uh, saying, come on, let's go. And you see just at the end of that scene, Dean starts to almost like skip, like he starts to hop a little bit. Mm-hmm. You see it in his back. And it was so much more pronounced in all of the other takes that they did that, uh, yeah, it, it was just weird. <laughs> it was just weird. <laughs> so maybe his instincts weren't always right. <laughs> Strange. So you guys are going to love this. Um, in the script, her name is Helen. <laughs> oh, all right. Helen Calavici. Yeah, it was a- Helen Loretto Trudy Calavici. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god. What even happened there? Like, <laughs> Helen Loretta, I don't know. I think we need the chalkboard again. Which tangent have we skewed into, Matt? It's like we're in hell or something. Why did they <laughs> dub over... No, no, Allison, no. Young Al with old Al voice. <laughs> <sighs> because, okay, because my theory here is they'd already done, well, at least once by this point, the whole idea of, well, anyone related to Sam has to be played by Scott Bakula in makeup. So, <laughs> the only thing they could do here is make up Dean a lot to de-age him. <laughs> they realised that wouldn't work, and we were a few years away from CGI de-aging. So what better <laughs> than to just plonk his voice over the top, sounding like a middle-aged guy. Even if they de-aged him digitally, he would still sound like a 50-something-year-old man who'd been know, smoking cigars most of his life. I know. But they, they did the same thing with Scott Bakula in the pilot. They had young yeah. Sam, he was dubbed over by Scott Bakula, but that was slightly less ridiculous because it was like one line. He was 12 in that scene. He sounded like he was 36. It was it was one line, and Scott Bakula <laughs> does not sound like, it doesn't have this kind of voice. So it, <laughs> yeah. It's slightly less ludicrous. Scott's voice is a lot more smooth. Yeah. It, it's still ridiculous, but it's a bit more plausible. And yeah, it's not It's not an entire scene where the two of them are talking against each other. Like, if you're blind and watching this, what the fuck do you think is going on? You have traded places in time with Dr. Sam Beckett. So I am him and he's me. Right. And who are you? I, I, I don't think you're ready for that. <laughs> And Dean Stockwell's barely doing kind of a young ver- It's like even he knows this is dumb. Like, so, hey, it's me, younger Al. <laughs> it's just so bad. And I wonder if that was the intention. Like, if they knew they were going to do that, did, like, Jamie Walters that played young Al, like, did he know they were going to dub over him like that? Like, what was that about? 
I feel bad for Jamie because you can tell he's acting his ass off. Like just his facial expressions and just he's nailing it. He's nailing every line they give him. Mm-hmm. And he's got it down. And to just take away from his performance with such a distracting ADR gimmick, I, it's just it's it's a shame. It's crime. I don't understand the point of that. I've seen I've seen other shows do that, and it's always bad. I've never seen it work. I don't know why they think. And it's weird because if they're trying to like sell the illusion that this is like a younger version of Dean Stockwell. He already looks so much like young Dean Stockwell. Like, this is the perfect casting. They don't need to, like, try and sell it anymore by adding the voice. This was such a good casting. There was a um, there was a TV movie that Dean Stockwell did called uh, Vanishing Sun 2. It was, like, um, part of a TV series or something. And Jamie Walters was cast as his son in that. And did he have, like, a weird voice? Did he have, like, a voice that was just so foreign? No, he talked normal. <laughs> no, no, but what I'm saying is the only thing I could see is, like, Jamie Walter's voice may be so different from Dean's. Like, maybe he spoke in a falsetto. I don't know. <laughs> maybe he sounded like Dream Sam. Hi, it's me, young <laughs> Al! And they're like, this was such a weird choice. I still would have bought that more. Suddenly, something came to mind, which is um, Star Trek Nemesis. Because <laughs> that always comes to mind. Does it have to come to mind? It does when we're talking about miscasting people who don't look at all like young versions of other people. What are you talking about? <laughs> Tom Hardy looks so unlike Patrick Stewart, and they didn't think, you know what? What would make this effect sell better is if we get Patrick Stewart to overdub Tom Hardy from start to finish. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. They cast someone that looked nothing like Patrick Stewart and said, you know what? Whatever. I'm just going to go with it. The audience will believe it. <laughs> but um, the fact they felt the, n- the need to overdub someone that does actually look like young Dean. Mm. Oh, boy. He sounds fine, too. I don't know if he was doing something weird there, but like um, he sounds like a normal-ass person. <laughs> um, and anything else I've seen him in, the you know what I absolutely love about this guy? Um, so Jamie Walters, he was like a teen heartthrob for a while. He looks it. Yeah, he was a recurring uh, cast member on uh, Beverly Hills 90210. Uh, but before that, he was in a, a little-known show called The Heights, which uh, would have fallen into obscurity because it lasted less than a season. If not for the fact that the fictional band, The Heights, recorded a song with him as the lead singer called How Do You Talk to an Angel? Oh, God. <laughs> so if you have ever heard that song, you know. How do you talk to an angel? That's young, young Al Calavici. <laughs> Is that Jamie actually singing or did they dub over his? No, it's him singing. Okay. He had like a... a brief singing career before um, retiring from teen heartthrob status and uh, becoming a paramedic. Oh, he's a paramedic now, eh? At least in 2004 he was. <laughs> Good for you, Jamie Wolf. Yeah, I definitely need to uh, to check out something that he's been in so I can hear his real voice. I mean, he has the voice of an angel. The angel. Why would you dub over that? We all know what cigars do to that kind of voice. <laughs> I would have loved to see what conversations Al was having with himself. Like, we saw a little bit of it, which was pretty great. Like, I, ugh, the voice was so distracting, which was really a shame because there was some good stuff in there. You know, when Al, when Al reveals that he's his older self, like, it was such a good delivery. It's, it's just a shame about the voice. Yeah. We do get um, also an origin for Bingo Bango Bongo. Triplets, no less. It's triplets. We find him the next morning asleep under the wood. I said, How'd you spend the night? 
Bingo, bingo, bingo bongo. <laughs> <laughs> Triplets. Why was Al going on about wanting to get with twins? He apparently got with triplets. <laughs> because getting with triplets does not negate the want to get with twins. <laughs> it was too much for him to handle. He's like, you know, twins, I think, would be the perfect medium. <laughs> right? You know, Al was the one that fixed the leap in the end, even if it, you know, him and his younger self. Um, it was Sam's idea, but Al's the one that did it. And I found it uh, interesting at the end. Sam's kind of doing the Al congratulations. Usually, like, Al's like, you did it, you're gonna leap. And Sam's like, you did it. You did it, buddy. You and Bingo did it. Oh, man, that, that should have started off a spin-off show where, because of the way, and, and this would have explained why they couldn't use this to leap Sam back, because of the way they leaped young Bingo into slightly younger Bingo, <laughs> one of the young Bingos ends up becoming a leaper. And oh is just going God. around in time, talking like this to everyone. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been so much fun. Was he supposed to be, what, in his, his 20s? He was 23. It's me, 23-year-old <laughs> Al Calavici. <laughs> he didn't start smoking cigars until Nam, and yet... And, and, yet. and yet. Yeah, we did get that little bit. There's so many, like, little bits of stuff that we get from this. It's really great. Lots of attention to detail here. Now that Lisa's alive, I wonder how Al ended it with her. It didn't seem to significantly change his history that he didn't lose her. Yeah, or maybe it just, uh... Just broke off, you know? It didn't work out. So, I mean, guys, I think we're dancing around the elephant in the room here, even though we've been talking about it steadily for the last three episodes. But this is it. That line. That fucking line. Success has nothing to do with leaping. Now, you know that. The success has nothing to do with leaping? Yes. <laughs> you know, that one. Yeah. It's so weird. They put that as a throwaway. That could have been a big moment, but maybe not for this episode. They could, or maybe it could be a climax in the episode. It's like, oh no, I failed, but then they still fix it, and so Sam's like, you know, actually, this success has nothing to do with with leaping. Turns out, they could have made this a big thing, but he just says it like fact, and it's like this is not what you guys have been acting like for four years. Yeah, right. I don't really know why it changed. <laughs> and this is getting back to the argument that you made fun of me for making in. The Curse of Tahotep, with them just laying the groundwork for this in a very subtle way. I will still make fun of you for making that argument. <laughs> why? Why do you? Why do you hate me? Why do? You, why do you always fight me on this? <laughs> I don't hate you. I just don't think that the idea was that they got killed by a mummy. I don't think they would reveal it that way, and especially not in a vague way like that. No, but what I'm saying is they never really. If you looked at that episode, they never really gave Sam a mission. They did. They didn't. It's in all... the dialogue. No, it's he not. He says oh, that they were guys. swallowed up by the earth. No. He has to save them from the no, sandstorm. No, all Al said was they all they all got uh, they all disappeared in a sandstorm. He just puts it out there. He never says anything like you're here what to save them. What do you think them. he says that for? Sam's Why gotta save them say from it? the sandstorm. In any episode, he would have said you have to save them from the sandstorm. You have to get them to safety. He doesn't have to state it that way every time. The audience isn't dumb. Why wouldn't he state it that way? They spoon feed the audience. It's like crazy on Quantum Leap. <laughs> Matt, please back me up. <laughs> no, Matt, back me up. <laughs> I, I'm with you, Allison. Um, I, I think Chris is crazy. <laughs> but I'm just enjoying listening to this. Why is this even an argument? No one is on your side, because I'm Chris. Right. Even, the, even the audience, the listeners are like, what is he talking about? They all laughed. They all laughed. <laughs> they thought I was crazy. <laughs> if you agree with Chris, there are ways for you let's, to contact uh, yeah, us. Let's, uh, let's, let's get Donald Belisario on the line. What was the intention? 
Did they get killed by a mummy? Was Did they have a purpose? There was no purpose. What was the intention? Who wrote that episode? Let's call them up. <laughs> was the purpose was to run away. It was Chris Rupenthal? Was that? Did yeah, that one? Chris. It was. Chris, it's Chris, it's Chris. <laughs> please. <laughs> please don't Tell me up. I'm right. <laughs> I know it had to come up in the rotation. We're watching Tahoe Tap. I have a theory your episode was pointless. What was the point? <laughs> <laughs> Chris Rupenthal must fucking hate me. <laughs> Guess what came up in the rotation, Chris? Some crappy mummy episode, which we're still arguing about two episodes later. I hated your crappy mummy episode. Tell me it was pointless. I need vindication. <laughs> Tell me you were planting the seeds for Lee Harvey Oswald. That's all I want to know. But you're right. That Stating that in this episode uh, was a big bombshell. I don't know why they stated it that way, um, but I guess it opens up the possibility. It's like, well, uh, why didn't he leap if success had nothing to do with it? Um, it just uh, it brings up more questions than answers by, by introducing that element. It was one big distraction to keep people from focusing the change in personal pronoun for Ziggy. There you go. <laughs> that was what it was. We're all arguing about that. No one is debating Ziggy becoming a she. Uh, all I can say is that um, when we were watching this, I was watching it with a college roommate. And he had gotten into the show recently because I was into it. And when Sam said that line, he turned to me and said, what? Isn't the whole show yeah. <laughs> that he has to succeed or he won't leap? Where, where did that come from? I mean, I understand why they wanted to do it, maybe so that they could tell different types of stories, maybe break out of the box a little bit, which is great, which is fine. But maybe have them discover in this case that success has nothing to do with leaping. Like you said, Allison, make it into more of a bigger thing. Oh my God, I failed. Yeah. Oh wait, I'm going to leap anyway. Like I feel it coming. You know, that would have been... At least, I think, more in keeping with the narrative that we had built up over the last four seasons. Mm-hmm. <sighs> uh, well, it's a pointless line. They could have skipped the line and the episode would not have been the worst for it. I don't get it. Regardless, I mean, this really does mark a turning point for Quantum Leap. Quantum Leap will never really be the same after this episode. They really do sort of break the mold. After this one, so. But you know what? That's, I think that's a good thing. I think they needed to change some things up and like really experiment with some stuff. And I think season five definitely did that. <laughs> well, this, this is the first time we see the waiting room, right? Yep. It is, isn't it? And, and which then becomes a, a regular facet of season five. So the, the whole concept of us seeing the future on a regular basis is kicked off here. I gotta admit, this is a pretty neat trick. I did want to talk about uh, yeah one other thing. These other things aren't important. But um, I t- Matt, do you remember um, what the original idea for this episode was? One of the other ideas they were kicking around? Um, yeah, go on. You, you brought it up, so go for it. I'd never heard this, Allison. What, do, what, what are you talking about? I might have brought it up, actually, like in, a, in another podcast, but uh, they knew they wanted to do a story about Al. They just weren't sure what. And one of the other ideas they were uh, throwing around was uh, doing a space mission, talking about uh, him as an astronaut. That would have been pretty awesome. But I think maybe like they just steered away from that stuff a lot because it just his his whole timeline. It just doesn't. It's like, when would he be on the space mission? None of this makes sense. Right. I think, um, yeah, we had discussed this a little bit because of uh, Diaper Monkey. Diaper Monkey. Mm -hmm. And um, I think in my book, I wrote him into the space shuttle program because it's the only thing that makes sense for a manned, you know, but he's by that point, he's still probably just a little bit too old unless he's some kind of mission specialist. I don't know. I really don't know because he certainly wasn't an Apollo. 
uh, because he was in Nam in, in, a, in a tiger cage. So it's not like he was going to the moon. So what else is there? One of those many different timelines, I guess. Right? And Matt, you had a, another point that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, so the the end of the episode, um, Sam leaps into Lee Harvey Oswald yes. in an obvious uh, fake outdoor set. Um, <laughs> so bad. <laughs> so bad. Which, which is then refilmed for Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, yeah. And, and done much better with a different actress. And I've never got to the bottom of how much of this is fan lore and how much of this is actually real. But apparently that's because it was a last-minute replacement for the original ending where he would have leapt into Magnum P.I. Oh, Well, that was okay. that was real. This was the Magnum leap-in. Yeah, I mean, and we know that there was a, the shot of um, Sam doing the, the leap-in, which was the, the famous wink to the camera, was filmed and shown at a convention. I can't believe that was actually filmed for real and it wasn't just, like, Scott and some of the crew doing it for a laugh just for the benefit of the convention audience. But I so want to believe that actually there was serious considerations to that being season five, episode one. I think that they were thinking of it. I think they had a different idea for an ending. Yeah. And what happened was multiple different things. Um, first of all, the ratings were not what they were wanting them to be. They were trying to like get some more people in. Um, so they were like, what is like a big, famous historical moment that we could use? And secondly, th that JFK movie had just come out, the Oliver Stone one, and uh, Donald Belisario was like, this is a bunch of horseshit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make my own movie, and I'm going to show you exactly how I think things went down. This All this is a bunch of stupid stuff, and we'll, we'll get into that in the uh, actual uh, Lee Harvey Oswald thing. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a lot. But I think like there was like last-minute changes, because this this was also a famous example that Donald Belisario talked about in early interviews not having Sam do. Like, he's like, we're not going to have him go into historical moments. Like, we will never have him, like, you know, leap in and save JFK or something like that. And then that's exactly what, what they're doing there. So it's uh, interesting how things changed. Yeah. But I do believe it was a last-minute change. I'd believe it, because that ending on the outdoor set looked really bad. Yes, but... um. Part of me wants to believe that it was a last-minute replacement for Magnum P.I. Part of me really doesn't. Um, <laughs> but but that, that would have definitely made for a, a fun podcast. Not that our Lee Harvey Oswald one won't be, but a Magnum P.I. one would have been very different. I think if they had done a legit Magnum P.I. episode, it would have been terrible. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just like if they had um, done like they wanted to do an animated one and they had like advertised that uh, in some commercials too. They had the people um, that animated Akira involved. Like this was like at a late stage, uh, they were going yeah. to do an animated episode and it would have been fascinating, but it would have been one of the worst episodes. You'd be like, oh yeah, remember that stupid animated episode? <laughs> Why did they do that? You would have forgotten about Diaper Monkey. Oh man, Diaper Monkey would be like way in the past. You'd be like, We're, ugh, di I didn't know how good I had it with Diaper Monkey. <laughs> Suddenly, Bigfoot seems reasonable. At least the Bigfoot thing is not, I mean, whatever. When we get to that episode, we'll get <laughs> yeah, to yeah. But, you know, I think if they had done Magnum P.I., it would have been fascinating because Magnum P.I. is both a show and canon to Quantum Leap. Yes. They mention it in the pilot, like his sister married a Magnum P.I. character, apparently. Um, so it sort of like exists in both worlds, but um, 
it's something that I have a problem with with a lot of the like famous people leaps or like uh, famous actors. Like the, the Bob Saget one was kind of like this too. And that like I think when it becomes about like this is a Magnum PI episode or a Bob Saget episode or a JFK episode or whatever, uh, it tends to kind of get starstruck and focused on that versus like Quantum Leap, which I don't I don't really care for. And yeah. just think of the logistics of an episode like that. If Sam is Thomas Magnum, then how much are you going to have to stroke Tom Selleck's ego by making almost half of the episode somehow being shown in, in a mirror? It would just be Al and Magnum in the waiting room, right? Talking to each other? Yeah, they could do it that way too, sure. They'd both be wearing Hawaiian shirts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did Magnum smoke cigars? Oh, did he? I've never seen Magnum P.I. <laughs> I mean, either. But we know that he wasn't even approached about it because someone asked him about it. And uh, Tom Selleck's like, mm, I don't know. <laughs> mm. Well, we sure did go down a cul-de-sac there. So what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, a leap yeah. for Lisa. Yeah, sorry. That was me. <laughs> yeah. I just, I knew we wouldn't necessarily have time to talk about that during Lee Harvey Oswald. And I really wanted to have a, a quick chat about Magnum P.I. Well, it's good because it, it puts Lee Harvey Oswald into broader context. And um, it's, you know, maybe it's something that if we all go in sort of armed with this knowledge of what might have been, as opposed to what really happened, it could help us give that episode the credit that it's due, at least in a historical context. So, you know, well, I guess we'll figure all that out when we uh, discuss Lee Harvey Oswald. But why don't we do some final observations for a leap for Lisa? Guys, final thoughts? Allison. This is an excellent episode. I think like there's like one or two points I wish they had done differently. Um, I do think it was a mistake to dub over uh, Young Al, but um, I think the performances were really great. Uh, the music especially should be commended for really like um, making this episode stand out, and uh, all of the guest actors were really bringing their A game. What about you, Matt? Yeah, same. Um, it's a it's an excellent episode. Uh, I love this one. The overdubbing is a real shame because um, it makes it hard to take some really good scenes seriously. But once you've got past that, yeah, uh, fantastic. And I'm going to say that I appreciate this episode more than I ever have. And I even now appreciate the bombshell thrown into the middle of Act 2 saying that success has no effect on leaping because I realized that from that we got to see a whole bunch of different kinds of things that we're going to be talking about in Season 5 and I think like you said Allison, some changes were necessary and um, whether or not they panned out I think it's a good thing that they tried to shake it up a little bit because um, what fun would it have been to keep seeing the same kinds of leaps over and over and over again let's get crazy, let's get nuts, let's get Season 5 so all right, guys. Wow, had a lot to talk about there. But don't despair, listeners out there. There's plenty more show to come. When we come back from the break, uh, you will be hearing my interview with actor Jeff Corbett, who played Chip Ferguson in this episode. So stand by. We'll see you on the flip side. QLP is brought to you by listeners like you. 
please go to patreon.com slash quantum leap podcast and give as much as you can for as little as a dollar a month you can be a contributor to the quantum leap podcast it goes to covering our server cost and helps keep the podcast going thank you hi i'm zoe dean i've got a couple of questions for you are you a fan of classic movies and old hollywood are you a film history nut do you love podcasts If you answered yes to any of these questions, then Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast is the show for you. Not Just Yesterday is dedicated to Roddy's amazing life and career, and gives interesting and fun behind-the-scenes information about the projects he worked on. The show covers everything from How Green Was My Valley to Planet of the Apes, and continues to be updated every few months with exciting new shows and awesome content. Interested? It's free to listen. And the show is available for download wherever fine podcast programming is given away. Just type Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast in the search bar and dive into the wonderful legacy left behind by Roddy McDowell. This is a podcast you will want to share with everyone you know and love. So plug in your headphones or turn up your speakers and remember to keep smiling. This is Natasha Pavlovich and you are listening to the Quantum Leap podcast. Okay, we're back, and as promised, here is our interview with Jeff Corbett. Welcome to the Quantum Leap Podcast, Jeff. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So I know that we're here to talk about um, your guest starring role in the season four episode, A Leap for Lisa. But uh, before we get into that, I'd really like to just get a little bit of your background. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into acting, and uh, sort of the things that led up to you being on Quantum Leap? Uh, Yeah. First of all, I think I was – I always liked attention. Apparently, when I was an infant, my mother said I reached out to people all the time to the point where – it started giving her a complex that I was abused. She was thinking people would think she was abusing that, especially apparently pretty girls. And I mean, I was like not even a year old, and I just it should be in the market, in line at the market, and I'd reach out for pretty women and stick my arms out. So there's probably something in my DNA. But then I, you know, like a lot of kids, I was really into television and then movies. And I guess I, I just kind of knew I wanted to be known. And I always laugh when actors go, oh, they, you know, I don't want to be recognized. Or, and I guess in certain situations, if you're having dinner with your family or something, it's annoying. But I find that to be utter bullshit. Yeah, you want to be left alone. So you go into entertainment where you're at. Right. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, you could have been anything else pretty much and been anonymous. But OK. Um so then, uh, yeah, and I, I started going to movies and fell in love with it. And then, you know, my parents weren't artistic in the least. So when I hit a certain age, my parents would let me walk downtown in our little town in Connecticut. And I'd go to the movies. It was a 99-cent theater. You know, and it was great because it was 99 cents. And if I, you know, if you liked the movie, you'd go back. They oftentimes... By the fifth grade, I'd go and I'd go to like the 7.30 show. And if I liked it, I'd stick around for the 9.30 show. And and then sometimes go back the following night if I really loved the movie. And what it helped me do was after I knew the story of the films, I'd start watching what the directors were doing and the actors were doing. So, And then I watched a ton 
which was really weird. I was a strange kid, I think. I, and I, I loved talk shows. I loved chat shows, afternoon chat shows that they don't have. Re- well, I guess Ellen DeGeneres has it, but mm-hmm. Mike Douglas show and Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin and all of those, uh, Dick Cavett. And they had great people on. And so when they had actors on, I'd always just listen to what they were saying. And so by the time I entered the business, I didn't have to learn as much of the vernacular that certain actors had to. So I knew where the tracking shot was and a dolly and a zoom. And I just sort of picked it up almost via osmosis by watching these things and and listen to what actors would say on those shows about their profession and their craft and whatever. When did you make the leap to performing? Um, well, one might say I've been performing literally since, you know, I mean, but to get on a stage and I couldn't wait. I was in the fifth grade. I had had a horrible, I, my, both my parents were educators and I was not a good student just for sheer lack of effort. Nothing else. Just, I was a class clown and I also I hate authority figures. Um, and, and I had really, I had a third grade teacher who was horrible to me and she was going to make an example. I mean, so, you know, when you're eight years old, like it, it's a long year. And it was hell, you know, and it's like, ah, I had a horrible third grade. Fourth grade wasn't much better. So I was really like depressed. And and then I got this woman from Long Island, New York, Judith Blair. This woman changed my life. You know, a teacher can make, I get teared up talking about it, can make all the difference in the world. And she did. And she said, you're funny. And I love that. And it was like, What? Every other teacher was like, you're funny, and I'm going to break you with that. <laughs> and she, she, you know, the first day of school, I went in, and, and I could do always do accents because I watched so much television. I watched tons, and so I could – I knew Yiddish because, I, you know, they were written – so many of these sitcoms are written by Jewish writers from, you know, a lot of the old-timers from the Yiddish theater. And so I had picked up, like, for an Irish kid from Connecticut, I was really good in Yiddish words, and it's all from sitcoms. But my first day of school in the fifth grade, I went in and uh, she was uh, new to the school. So I was speaking broken English as much as possible. And and that's all from Hogan's Heroes. And we also had neighbors who were from Munich, Germany. But and so I, I was doing this and my buddies were like, oh, he doesn't speak English. He's He just moved here from Germany. And so it was like three hours of this. Me, you know, was ist los? <laughs> and she tries, she's like what and my friends would speak like gibberish to me and i and it was like <laughs> so she went to the teacher's lounge at like lunch and said jesus got this really cute kid he's but he's from germany and, and he doesn't speak a white i wish they had told me that i have somebody who's you know they said what's his name and they said jeff jeff corbett and <laughs> The teachers started laughing and they said, yeah, well, that's Joe and Cosette Corbett's son. And he's about as German <laughs> your ham sandwich. And, you know, she came back in and, you know, I was, I was like, you know, guten Morgen to her. And she was like, she leaned in and I'm like, oh, here it comes, man. Our first salvo, our opening salvo of the year comes. And she said, I love that. She said, that is genius. And she said, but. But now I know you're an American, so speak English. And on Fridays, if the class was good all week, should do like an hour and a half of improv and drama. And I, sh- I shined. Uh, I, you know, I just, I was, 
I could do that off the top of my head and I'd immerse myself. I always said, you know, in imagination and I think, you know, give me a character and put me in a thing and I'm a little kid playing army in the backyard. I'm, I'm full in. So she, there was two plays that came up when I was in the fifth grade and I wanted to be in one of them uh, and she was directing it. So I was going to be, you know, directed by Judith Blair and I'd be at with her for months and I had this huge crush on her. So it was very appealing. And I showed up to the audition and found out I was late. And so they had cast her play and I was just devastated. And they said, but there's another, there's one part in the second play directed by another teacher. And I said, what is it? And they said, Miss Leon, it's a, it's a woman's, a, an old grandmother. And I said, well, I'll read for that. And I, I immediately went into doing this. Huh? You know, they'd say a line and a huh? And the kids would look and like, that's not in the script. The ladies would say, huh? But they're like, yeah, but an, old, an older person would. That, that, you know, and so they, they got me, hired me. They, they cast me in it. Um, we rehearsed for months and months and months. And it was funny because I even remember when I started, the, I remember exactly where I was. I was doing the lines, and but I didn't know what the play was about necessarily. And then I remember one Saturday rehearsal and it was like, oh, and everything clicked like, oh, and I know what the play is about now. And it was super fun. And I did this play in like late spring. And my, my parents went and my grandmother and my uncle, who was uh, my father's brother and was very gay and very hilarious and loved me a lot. And my grandmother leaned into my father. My father was a gas. My father was a World War II vet, kind of a mindset of World War II still. And my grandmother said, when's Jeff coming out to my father? And he said, he's out there. She said, which one? the woman. I don't know what my father thought. And I was really good in it. I still say it was the best work I've ever done. <laughs> and so I didn't pursue it after that, although I knew I knew I, I was going to do it. Uh, and one of the great stories is my father, he's a great guy. And he said to me, I'd, I'd gone to Europe for a few months after college and I came back and he said, so what are you going to do now? And I said, go to New York and try acting. There was a long pause, and I thought he was going to say, well, look up my college friend. He's a producer. Pause. He looked at me, and he said, just be careful. There's a lot of homosexuals in that business. <laughs> Words to live by. Thanks, Dad. And uh, so I did. I went to New York. I, I met a guy for, in a bar in New Haven. He was at Yale Drama. We started talking. I told him I had always wanted to do it. He had written down a few schools in New York, you know, acting classes. And uh, one of them was for commercials a commercial acting class. And I went and, uh, God, this is a long story. Anyway, uh, I, I went and I, there was an agent there, Michael Kingman, who was, I didn't know, was a legendary New York agent. And I, I, I sat in on this class. I was auditing just, and I watched them, these kids do their final thing for this agent. And they were horrible. These kids were horrible. And I was, I started cracking jokes because it was holy shit. And he saw me, and on the way out, he said, come here. He didn't talk to any of these other guys. They were pissed. There's a guy auditing the class. He said, come here, who are you? You know, I got his stuff. He said, call me, and I did. And he ended up being my agent in New York for years till he died of AIDS, sadly. And he was a brilliant agent. And I uh, moved to New York City and, you know, did plays and studied and, you know, just sort of worked my way up through the ranks. It's a, it's a brutal business. It's not for the faint of heart. 
when kids ask me high school, I, in fact, I have to do something for uh, my high school, the kids who are graduating this year and sort of got screwed out of their senior year because mm-hmm. of the virus. They asked me to do a thing over the weekend that I'm going to do tomorrow video. And whenever kids ask, you know, I used to get a ton of people writing or calling. My mother would always give out my phone number to anybody in town, who, which was a joy. Thanks, mom. I'm getting calls from strangers. How do I get my kid into acting? And it was like, don't. <laughs> unless your kid has, and it sounds jaded and whatever, because I love it. But unless you know what you're in for. And I, I mean, you know, I, I, it was a girl in my class last year in my acting class a couple of years ago. Beautiful. I mean, stunning stunningly gorgeous and super talented from a wealthy family. So she didn't have to wait tables. She graduated from Duke in three years. So I mean, she was talented. This girl's going to be a star in no time. Somebody's going to snap. Gone in six months. Could the business just, it ate her alive. It's a tough, tough grind, man. And there's rejection and you've got to be patient and there's no promises regardless of you. I know more talented people who don't work than I know talented people who do. So that's how I got into it. And it's always like this. You're in for a grind, you're, but it's super satisfying when you get work and doing it in the process. And don't listen to the naysayers, man. I don't care what it is, acting or anything else, man. You got you got a passion. Put your head down and go. And of course, things were going great up until for like this was has been a beautiful year for me. I had a couple films in the can and you know work I was proud of doing. And then of course the virus hits because I right. swear to God it was Hitler or Pol Pot or somebody in my previous lifetime. I don't. Know. <laughs> well, you're talking about the grind, especially when you're uh, just an actor just starting out. And how did you make the leap to go from the New York scene to the L.A. scene? One of the earliest things I see on your on your resume, it looks like you were in a movie called A Talent for the Game with like legends like Edward James Olmos and Lorraine yeah. Bracco. I was working in Greenwich Village at the Riviera Cafe on 7th Avenue and West 4th Street in the heart of Sheridan Square, waiting tables, working the door. And in fact, it's a crazy thing. I was, my folks were still in Connecticut. So especially during the warmer months, you know, any chance I could get out of the city. I, and my brother worked for Metro North Railroad. So I had mm-hmm. free ride on the train. So I, I was like, well, I'm not going to hang out in the city. I'm going to go up to Connecticut. So I, was go, I would go up to Connecticut. And a guy who I just read his obituary this morning, I just found out he died yesterday, was a neighbor who lived across the street from my parents. It was a guy who was only six years older than me. He, he was a young, you know, young guy. I was in my late twenties, and I, I had played baseball, and I, I was a good baseball player. And uh, I would go up there, and I would throw the baseball with this guy who lived across the street. And I was throwing really hard, and I remember even people were like, "Dude, you know, you're you're throwing maybe low nineties." And I'm like, "Yeah," which if I had done in high school, I'd have been a, I'd gotten a scholarship. Anyway, I was throwing a lot. I was in shape, and. Uh, I had come back. I had been out here for pilot season to L.A. Uh, with my agent, Kingman. It was the first year I had to come out with him and under his tutelage. And um, everybody went back to New York and his assistant said to, uh, to him, did they like Cor- Did you submit Corbett on this talent for the game? And he said, no. And I played one softball game with the uh, assistant. And he saw what I could do on a softball field. And he said, no, can he play baseball? And he said, get him in immediately. So I went to Central Park. Like a Wednesday night, 
And Frank Whaley, it was great. It was the funniest, great story. There was a, a long line of actors, and everybody had their baseball gloves because they had seen everybody in L.A. over the winter. I didn't get submitted on this film. And all the actors in classic Hollywood, can you play baseball? <laughs> <laughs> can I play baseball? Can I ride a horse? Can I skydive? Can I fly a plane? <laughs> of course I can do all, you know. And no, of course. And then they'd read these guys, they'd read really well, and then they'd go throw, and these guys would, you know, it's like, what are we looking at? It's Johnny Spastic, you know? And so in New York, they did just the opposite. They brought the crew out, some guys from LA out, former Dodgers and whatever, and they had people throw first, which they should do for. Every sports movie, regardless, because it can take you right out of a, any film. I don't, it's not just sports, but sometimes you even see, you see people smoking sometimes and stuff, and you go, that's not a smoker. Yeah, I can notice that every time as a former smoker. You're not inhaling. <laughs> or a drinker, the way that you see him drink shots all the time, and you're like, that ain't whiskey. <laughs> the most hardened alcoholic still goes like, boom. Especially the first one. Oh, yeah. Anyway, you know, these guys, you'll see it all. Yeah, I mean, it's just those simple things that can take, even sometimes subconsciously, it takes the audience out. But so they had people throw. And I remember, I think it was Frank Whaley was in front of me and he threw. And I remember saying, if that's my competition, I got this. And the first pitch I threw, I just laced a, about a 90 mile an hour fastball. And this guy's, and he, I remember he turned and looked at the guy from the Dodgers and was like, and then I, he said, throw it on. And I threw another fastball. And then I gave him the sign for a curveball. And most actors don't even know what, you know, this stuff means. And so they looked and I threw up, snapped the curveball off. And they called me in and they said, where'd you play? And whatever. And next night, instead of going to the Riviera Cafe to wait tables, I was on a, in first class with Madonna sitting in front of me <laughs> uh, with the casting director. And I came out and I read, and then I got that. So then I, I relocated to, I kept going back and forth to New York until I met my, my wife. I'd go, I'd spend all my late spring and early part of summer back and working in the city and stuff. Cause I love the East coast a lot. I'll always be an East coast guy. And then I just sort of worked my way up through TV ranks. I was always trying to get into TV. You know, I had grown up watching so much television. I think the first year I was here, I think I did a, co-star on a Vietnam show. Yes, it's called Tour of Duty, and it's a show that I actually really loved when I was in high school. I remember watching it at Terrence Knox. Terrence Knox. I was petrified, but it was great. And most people are pretty great. I think you hear horror stories about Hollywood, but I think most people are pretty uh, nice and accommodating to younger people. So, And I had always paid attention. Even as a young person, I watched a ton of talk shows, and I'd listen to actors talk about craft or whatever and i just picked up so when i was a little kid even i knew what is you know a zoom you know when they said zoom in or you know a dolly shot or i kind of knew that stuff and you learn as you go and it's for young people you just ask questions and do your homework i liked films and stuff so i was always a little bit ahead maybe of some of the other people uh, it blows my mind today when i talk to young actors and bring up you know, not obscure actors, you know, maybe like John Garfield or something who we should probably know too, but Steve McQueen, Paul Newman, but yeah. you know, remember who? I'm like, hey, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry. Even if it's not going to help your acting, you're just a dope. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> you just, do you want to be a dope? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> 
Christ. <laughs> and yeah, so I did that show. And, and then um, Talent for the Game didn't go anywhere because the film had, was flawed. But they fired the brass at Paramount halfway through shooting. And I remember coming out of the hotel one day in Idaho and Eddie almost was shaking his head. And I said, what's up? And it wasn't good. It wasn't a good shake. And he, I said, what's up? And he goes, they axed them all. And I said, what? And he goes, Paramount, they they canned everybody who greenlit this movie. And, <laughs> and I'm green, yeah. And like, so what's that mean? He goes, it isn't good. Like, you know, my agent passed away uh, right after Town for the Game from AIDS. And so, I, you know, I, I signed with William Morris. And I, I'd been reading for TV quite a bit, but they wanted me to continue with movie. I wanted to work. I didn't care in what. And in those days, it was a real delineation. You worked your way up. Film actors didn't do TV. Right. The actors didn't do commercials. And now Oscar winners sell tampons. <laughs> Anybody will do anything for cash these days. And the old way was better in a lot of respects because there was, there was kind of a hierarchy. And with that hierarchy, your pay increased with each job too. And that doesn't happen anymore. You know, in the old days, if you got, you know, $1,100, the next job, you'd get $1,200, you know? So there was like an incentive. And now it's like, here's what we're paying. You don't want it. Turn around. There's 300 mm -hmm. actors who will take the job. They figured it out. Well, coming from the heels of, I guess, a film that didn't go where you wanted it to go, it seems that your next step after that was getting a guest spot on Quantum Leap. Can you tell us how you got that role? Yeah, it was so funny because... So often, I'll even go on IMDb sometime and go, I didn't do that show. That's a misprint or somebody at And then I'll, oh, wait, I did something. <laughs> That's not memorable. However, Quantum Leap, because it was my first guest star role, maybe. But also, uh, there was something about that show that, which is kind of the reason why I agreed to do this, because there was something magical about that whole process that I really loved. And I remember going out to the old... Uh, well, still there, MTM, Mary Tyler Moore's old place at North Radford, where Seinfeld was shot, and a ton of shows shoot out there. And it's a beautiful uh, little lot, uh, you know, um, with sound stages and pine trees. It's in the valley. And I remember going to the callback. I don't remember the initial audition for that, but I remember going to the callback, and uh, it was like a Friday night, Friday evening. It was beautiful out, springtime. And, and I remember going in the room and, and reading, and I remember doing a feeling like, which I never, I was always lacking in confidence. And I left that room going, it was good. That felt great. And certain roles just sort of, you know, like a good pair of jeans, an old pair of jeans or mm. shoes and boots or something. And that role just sort of went, Else can do that better than what I do, you know, not just what I did, but I, I know this guy, you know, there's, there was, a, and I like that character, Chip. And it's funny because, like I said, sometimes I won't even remember the show I was on. And this guy, I remember, it was, I, I didn't even look this up. It was Chip Ferguson, wasn't it? My character's yes, name? Yes, that's exactly Chip Ferguson. I have my nameplate from that that I wore on my. Oh, do you? Also stole a, uh, you know, I guess there's the statute of limitations is up. I stole a lighter that had the Navy pilot's wings insignia on it that I still use on a lot of gigs, especially if I go in for military stuff. So that, yeah, I, I, I read for it. Maybe it was a 
not a Friday night because I think the next day I got a call and I was just ecstatic that I got the gig, you know, my first guest star and, and that show in particular. And I was a huge fan of Dean's and um, Blue Velvet was kind of revelatory for me. It opened up a like, you know, I had, I had always seen studio pictures as a kid, like most people, you know, you see the sort of larger budget or whatever. And then Blue Velvet, when I was really getting into different kinds of films, John Waters movies really sort of opened my eyes up to like, oh, you don't have to make a movie for tens of millions of dollars. You, you and your buddies can go out and have one of your friends follow a dog around and eat dog food off the sidewalk. And make- <laughs> Poor Divine. We'll never, ever live that day. And Blue Velvet was one of those where you know, Lynch and with Dean, it was just revelatory. So I was really looking forward to meeting him. And I, I remember going to wardrobe and getting like, Oh yeah, Navy. And my old man was Navy in World War II. And, you know, we started shooting that down in, uh, uh, San Pedro at an old base. There was an old World War II. Really? Yeah. They had used it for during World War II as some sort of maybe, uh, embarkation station before guys went off to fight in the Pacific. And the guys gave me the history of the place. And James Whitmore was directing that episode, James Whitmore Jr. Right. I was going to ask you about him as well. So, I mean, there's so much about that, ep- such a packed episode, so much going on. And I, there are so many aspects that I wanted to really touch base with you about it. There are a lot of little scenes with a lot of the guest characters. You had a scene with the actor who played the doctor in the bar. Was that like an actual bar that was on that base that you guys shot in? Or did you go between that and sound stages? Yeah, Larry. Larry. He was a great guy. And he's in every and one of the great character actors. He was great because I, I had a little bit of a, some problems. I was the only... Uh, seeing in the bar, I had some, some problem struggling a little bit and he was great because he just sort of put his arm on the hand on my arm. Was like, You're doing great. And you know, it was like, that's all you need from another actor. It's like a guy who's been around for a long time. Right. And like, Oh, thanks Larry. All right. And, you know, and then it went smooth sailing after that. Yeah. I think I shot down there and it was great. It's the old Hollywood, you know, not old Hollywood, but it was days gone by. It's been 28 years. We shot and they would, my call times would be like 7 a.m. So I'd leave wherever I was living in 92 up in this part of L.A. and go all the way to San Pedro, which is down by Long Beach. So I'd leave at like six in the morning and then we wouldn't shoot my stuff for hours and hours and hours. And I'm like, didn't bother me. First of all, I want, you know, I'm doing TV. I'm doing what I always wanted to do. And there's no complaint here. And I'm, I'm being paid and I'm being paid handsomely. And then Dean found, I think my character smoked a cigar. And so Dean saw me because I didn't want to look fake smoking the cigar. I didn't want to look, you know, like an amateur. So I would, I sat outside my, not even a trailer. It's a honey wagon, which is like a small portion of a trailer. And I was sitting on the steps smoking the, one of the cigars. I had asked the prop guy, can you give me a cigar just so I can get used to it so I don't puff and you know look like a, a schmo? And Dean's walking by, sees me smoke, goes, you smoke heaters, kid? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if he had said, you pogo stick, I'd oh, yeah. Sure. And next thing I know, he comes back with Cubans. And he's like, come on, let's meet. And he was so great. And we smoked cigars together. That's awesome. 
And I'm telling them how much, you know, I said, I, I know you hear this all the time, but, you know, your stuff as a kid was amazing. As a child actor, you were great. And Blue Velvet was transformational for me and blah, blah. And he was like, ah, thanks, man. <laughs> and, you know, this is a guy who's, you know, he was the hippie, you know, he, he lived the 60s. It, it, it was like, it was such a, for it to be this kid from a little town in Connecticut. It's like, this is all I ever dreamed of doing. And then Whitmore was James Whitmore, who I just ran into right before the lockdown. I was at uh, Paramount uh, reading for um, NCIS. And I had a call back and uh, Jimmy Whitmore Jr. came walking by and uh, I was with another actor who's a good friend of mine. Uh, he got it. But Whitmore came by and I said, Jimmy, directed me at my first ever guest on. He goes, what was it? Quantum Leap, spring 1992. And he, he started laughing. I remember that. <laughs> he's such a good guy and he's been around forever. And that was the other thing for me was that I'm jumping all over the place, but I grew up watching a lot of Belisario shows, so I always paid attention to the names and the credits. So, like Baba Black Sheep, if I wasn't a, an actor, I'd have been a pilot. I was always into planes, and Whitmore was one of the actors in Baba Black Sheep. Well, I wanted to ask about Don specifically, because since you were on a season finale episode, which Don wrote, did you get to interact with him on set at all? I did. I only met him once, and it, I was just thinking about that. Because, you know, he done, he was a huge, huge force in television mm -hmm. in the 80s and, and 90s. And some of this stuff still around today. Um, but I was in the makeup trailer. I was coming out of the makeup trailer. We were shooting in San Pedro on the beach. I think it's the, the scene. I was getting ready to do the night scene where I, the girl and I right. interact. And he grabbed me and pulled me in and said, hey, I'm done. I said, oh, you know, oh, nice to meet you, Mr. Belisario. And he said, I love what you're doing. And That's he great. said, why are you in rushes? And we were laughing. And I was so touched, man. And it was the only time I've ever met him. And I've done a few Belisario shows, but that was it. And I was, I was too green to realize, like, no, dude, continue the conversation with that guy. You might get on a series. Right. <laughs> well. Don wasn't the only one that uh, you were able to interact directly with. You had a number of scenes with Scott. Can you tell us about working with him? Yeah, one of the nicest people, and I'm sure everybody you've ever talked to says, so, you know, you know, generally I've only worked with a handful of people you want to punch in the head. Very few. Then there's some people you go, eh, you know, they weren't unfriendly or friendly, they were just professional or whatever scott Bakula is a genuinely good good guy and fun and was accommodating and generous and every positive attribute not an actor can have but a person can have Bakula seemed to possess i really really like the guy we had a lot of fun off camera and then when you're doing that when you go to do the stuff on camera, it just makes it that much easier because you know the person's not judging you. They're not impatient. They're not whatever those things are. So there was one scene in there. I remember the line. I said, uh, oh, yeah, that guy looks like he's all business. Oh, that jiving guard in the door looks like he's all business. And I, I'm doing like a, like a Georgie Jessel thing or something, you know? <laughs> and 
Bacula started laughing. And I'm like, I, I don't know where that got in. I didn't think I was going to come in and do the scene like any Jerry Garden. It was just so funny. And you generally don't take those kind of risks unless the person you're playing the opposite, it makes you feel that way. We were at Universal the last day I shot, which was all green screen stuff. And I'd never seen green screen. You go into these sound stages and mm-hmm. it was massive. You know, I'd seen green screens, I think, like in newsrooms or something, you know. And so they're, right. they're like plasma sized large televisions or whatever. You know, and then you go in and it's like the whole place is lit up in, in those days. It was green screens and it was the Roddy McDowell stuff. I'm with Whitmore with <laughs> Dean, and with. Roddy McDowell. And I'm like, this is awesome. And the oh, and Jamie Walters. He played bingo. Right. Jamie Walters. And Whitmore pulls me aside and goes, see this kid? And I said, yeah. And he goes, he's going to be a young Marlon Brando. He's a young Marlon Brando. He's on. And I remember thinking, thanks, pal. What am I? <laughs> I'm glad you're, glad you're totally stoked over this kid's work. You know, like you, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I got an ego too, pal, but it was so great. And I, I was pretty deferential to Roddy. I didn't fawn over like, you know, but he's another guy who's worked like, dude, he's been around since how green is my Valley in 1936 or something, you know, or 40, but it was just, I was smart enough to watch those guys work. I didn't go to my trailer. I just sort of went behind the camera and, let me see how he does this and how he approaches his work. And Dean, too, whenever I could, I would constantly sneak into watch what they're doing and be quiet. And you learn a lot by watching people who are consummate pros. Well, some other people that were on the episode have since gained some renown. Terry Farrell is one. She went on to DS9. And, of course, the late Charles Rocket, who is a Quantum Leap fan favorite because he appeared in another episode. Do you have any stories about working with them? Yeah, Rocket was, you know, Charlie was a material guy. And I ran into him just before his passing at a golf course when I, you know, I don't play golf very often, but a buddy and I would meet every Friday or something, a couple Fridays a month and play some golf by Santa Monica. And one day Charlie said, Hey, can I join your, and I said, can I join you guys? And yeah, and I said, you're Charlie. I said, we did quantum leap together. And oh yeah. And Charlie was a genuinely good egg. We laughed a lot. I remember him, all of us, that was the most beautiful thing about doing quantum leap was we laughed all the time. Everybody was laughing all the time. And so I could tell Charlie was kind of a tortured soul and, you know, you could sort of get that. But boy, when we laughed, it was real. And that's what I remember so much about, I think I shot for eight days. We went in a day extra, maybe. And uh, overtime, I made a ton of money off of that because every day was into overtime. Because like I said, I'd get there at seven and it would be seven at night. And we're ready for you, Mr. Cooper. Like, you know, I smoked a box. <laughs> Cigars today. <laughs> They're paying me for this. Like, want this to end? Hey, can you bring Chip back? Um, <laughs> Charlie was great. Terry Farrell, and she was so beautiful. And I had them. You know, I can hold my own comedically. And I remember there was a scene in a hospital room 
And we were yucking. They couldn't get it. <laughs> we were just making each other laugh, you know? And like, those are some of the best days in, in stuff that you remember. There's always those fun scenes of that are going to be memorable scenes. But ultimately, it's like who you get to do them with. And mm. the experience you have while you're doing them is kind of the memories I take away. And I just remember... She, I remember she was from the Midwest, like Chicago and back. Yelling and I started just riffing about the Midwest and hayseeds and whatever. And just in her, like, are uh, you, cause I don't know, where's Scott from? Scott is from, uh, I believe St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. And we just, we had a lot of fun. Everybody I worked with on that was, a, a and I knew one of the younger guys. I didn't know a lot of people in Hollywood. I and I hadn't been here that long, and I knew a handful of people. And one of the few you know, kids I knew was one of the Navy guys. So that was kind of nice. Um, all around, man, I have nothing but lovely memories of that. And I remember, too, I, I had to loop it. I went back to New York, and I had to loop. I had to loop in Manhattan. And I don't know what happened, but you can tell the the... Uh, they didn't do a great job. You don't have to feel bad about ADR that's a little bit dodgy on Quantum Leap. The show sort of has a history of that. And I'm surprised that um, Jamie's part came off as well as it did, because if you recall, they looped all of his dialogue with Dean doing it. Right. Dean dubbed over everything he did, and it actually came out very well. Right. So in the face of all of that obvious ADR that actually kind of worked, probably what you're thinking of, not many people are going to pick up on it. <laughs> I know, but when you're, when you're watching yourself, it's like, ah, ah, I didn't get that, or, you know, we didn't get that. Yeah, I forgot that Jamie Walters, his entire stuff was looped by Dean because he was playing Dean as a young right, guy. Right, and it was a choice that they made. Um, I think the jury's still out on that one with the fans. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you had such a great positive experience. And um, from what I understand, Quantum Leap is also kind of a family affair for you. Your wife appeared in a season four episode too, did she not? It's a wonderful leaf. Which was two or three weeks ahead of mine. We didn't know each other at the time. Oh, you didn't? I, though it's just a coincidence, huh? I think one of our first dates, we were talking about jobs we liked doing. So it was like a year later, a year and a half later. And she spoke glowingly of Scott and the whole process, too, and the process with those people, that set and that crew. Mm -hmm. And you know, that's, that's what you also find about it's like a baseball team or one might even say our current government, that the leader sets the tone for the way a, a, a set's going to be. So if there's a star who's difficult or a director who's demonstrative and difficult you're gonna have difficult things or you know jeffrey tambor the actress you know once i remember i studied with jeffrey and he said, said all it takes is one negative actor and it's like mm -hmm. cancer it's like a cancerous cell it'll spread throughout and before you know it the project's in the toilet and it doesn't have to be the star it can be anybody but just somebody you know and it's true and what my wife and I both said about Quantum Leap was that it was pro, you know, camera mm -hmm. operators down to everybody was just cool. And that's not always the case, you know, 
that's not always the case. She loved it. She, my wife, she liked doing that one. And I, I think that's why Scott always seems to have a series on air is because people want to work with the guy. From Quantum Leap, can we move on a little bit? It seems to me that um, it was kind of a springboard to a career that has now spanned, what, like 30 years? And dozens and dozens of film and TV appearances. But I'm going to bring one up in particular because I'm a huge fan of Frasier. And I rewatched your Frasier last night. And that's, you know, my wife and I, we watch Frasier for a couple hours every night, it feels like. So, um I wanted to, you know, just as a personal fanboy moment for me, say thank you. And uh, can you tell me what it was like to work on Frasier? Yeah, that's another one. I went in to read and uh, Jeff Greenfield, who later went on, he's a huge casting director here. It was at Paramount. And I went in to read. He did Modern Family, just finished up with Modern Family for 10 seasons. And I, I read for this large role, guest starring role. And it was one of the weird things where... It usually doesn't happen this way. Usually you get a phone call to say you got the gig. All the actors that got a callback were asked to stick around after we read, and there weren't that many. So we read, and Greenfield walked out of his office and said, thank you, everyone, for coming, which was nice thing. But Jeff Corbett got it. <laughs> wow. And it's so weird <laughs> around the other actors because inside you're like, yeah, yeah. You know? But, you know, you got to kind of go like, uh, sorry. <laughs> so I booked that. And we went to the table read on the Monday, and there's Marsha Mason and mm -hmm. Kelsey and everybody. And it, I had a large part, and I read. And then by, like, Wednesday, Greenberg called me and said, bad news. The episode's too long. They're eliminating your characters. And he goes, don't worry. I'm going to bring you back. And sure, to his word, he did. So I wasn't in this. I can't even remember which episode has initially slated to do but a few weeks later i got the one you saw you know and i had a much smaller character but a character nonetheless and i run into perry gilman right. quite often in fact we did a show for cbs she was on and perry every time i i run into her i always say i was your boyfriend for a few minutes <laughs> they were all super pros i mean and i loved like jane leaves in to live and die in la she was amazing in that and super beautiful but uh john mahoney and marcia mason to me you know again stalwarts who you know their work is is amazing sad like john is no longer around but mm, yeah, i'm super psyched to do that show the the character that you were playing originally, um, you were talking about the table read. Were you ever able to shoot any scenes as that character, or did they cut you before? Those four cameras, man, that's the way to do it. Because you're you're always going to the studio. You're never having to travel on location and get up mm -hmm. at four in the morning to drive to Pacoima or someplace, you know, or be driven, I guess, if you're a star. But even then, you're up at four in the morning. Um, those four camera shows, it's a way easier grind. You know, you do the table read on Mondays. And so the writers, there's the bank of writers and then the producers behind them. And you realize how many people it takes to put this stuff on the air. It's incredible. And Chris Henchy, a guy I knew in New York back in the day, he's married to Brooke Shields, huge producer now. He was one of the uh, writers. Chris is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life. And uh, we reconnected. I was like, I looked across. Chris, didn't know you were on this. 
so you sit at the table on Monday and you know, huge table and all the actors and the scripts and and you read and then they basically you're done for the day because the producers give their notes to the writers and the director adds his two cents. It was, I think, James L. Brooks was the, the director. And then Tuesdays, you know, you do it again twice. Do the two, and then you start blocking and do that through Thursday. And then Friday night, they bring in the audience and you do it twice. I know I've been talking a lot about the past and uh, reminiscing about the shows that I love, but um, tell us what you're doing these days. What's what's happening with Jeff Corbett? Coming out, oh, I don't know if they'll be in the theaters because I don't know if they'll be theaters when this is all. <laughs> Which, you know, it's, it's, it's always nice to see yourself in the theater on a big, huge screen and 20 feet high. It's kind of fun. I don't, so I don't know if that's going to be a thing anymore, but I've got a movie coming out with Denzel Washington and uh, Rami Malek and Jared Leto all the little things. It's creepy. It's really a great script about a person who may or may not be a serial killer. And Denzel and Rami Malek play cops trying to figure this whole thing out. Uh, it's a really good script by uh, John Lee Hancock directed. He's a really good director. So that I've got that coming out and then I've got a movie coming out called the, the United States versus Billy Holiday. Really, I play a horrible redneck uh, senator <laughs> in 1940. The greatest. I often get nice guys with little to do. You know, it's like expository stuff. So when they uh, ask you to, this is great. I wanted to read for this thing just the, uh, before the, the lockdown. And um, they had already shot in, in Montreal, the film, but they wanted to develop the story a little better. So they shot some stuff in L.A., added some characters in. So I went in, and it's a room with African-Americans in the room. I was the only uh, Caucasian in the room and playing a senator. And I, there was not much on the page. But I'm like, it's 1948. These guys are going after Billy Holiday. Let me make a couple of choices here. So I, he doesn't say he's a Southern senator. doesn't say. But, I'm, you know, the dialogue's a little, you know, it was, racist you know overtones and so i just went in and i'm dropping n bombs everywhere there is well you know and that's just the way it is when you're dealing with that and these people were looking I'm like they're either gonna hire me or kill me <laughs> right <laughs> luckily for me i walked out of the room and got a call with i think by the time i got home my agent said i don't know what you did in the room buddy but you blew their minds <laughs> <laughs> so we had a we had a lot of fun. So that's coming out. And then uh, over the, the course of this whole lockdown, you know, it just sort of been, it's like everybody, we're all just sitting in this sort of, I grew this. So I'm mm -hmm. hoping they're, they're going to do a civil war thing. And right. like, <laughs> I never had a beard in my life. My hair's long. I'm like, you know what? Man, bring back Grizzly Adams. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to have my daughter. She's going to be a senior in high school next year. She's a good photographer. She wants to be a cinematographer. And, uh, I'm going to have her take some pictures here and just so I have them so that uh, in the future, if they're casting stuff, period pieces or whatever, look, I can grow a beard because <laughs> I'll probably never have it again. But I'm just hoping, you know, hope we can get back to work soon because it's been kind of a, a lovely thing in a way. First of all, I've gotten to spend a ton of time with my family that I haven't, you know, my kids are in college and never around and we've all been sort of locked down. You know, having dinner together every night's been kind of nice, but I've, it's also reminded me how much I really do love what I do for a living. Um, 
and because sometimes I lose sight of that. And it's like now I'm really itching to get back to it because I, I love it. And, and, and I, you know, I've also recognized that I, I used to sort of get on, uh, you know, what do we do? We're not really affecting change. Really? Well, over the last three months, without entertainers, this would have been a much more difficult process. And I've watched a lot of stuff been thoroughly entertained and i think we're in a golden age of television and i think there's some tremendous writers and it all starts there man and if you got good writers it's easy to act it's been beneficial for us too because a lot of people are uh having more time to listen to podcasts like this one so yeah totally <laughs> and you know i heard i can't remember who but it was just a couple nights ago and somebody i respect said there was an interview and he said i kind of see it like the old days of radio podcasts are that like the fireside chats and stuff and, and and old radio programs that's what podcasts are it's a little bit of the theater of the mind and you know so like people listening to this when i'm talking about doing quantum leap and the beauty of the, the beautiful sets that i don't know to visualize it is is in your mind too is mm. it's great and sitting on a, the step smoking a cigar with with sockwell that's fun for people. Instead of seeing just the image of that, it's that's the beauty of podcasts, man. I think it's sometimes better to have it in your own mind's eye than to see the actual photo because there's no blemishes in our mm. mind. It's all. And I'll tell you, there were no blemishes doing Quantum Leap, man. That was uh, one of the most fun shows I ever did in my life. Can you tell our listeners where they might find you on social media or online where they might follow you? Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Punky McCorbett. That's punky, like Punky Brewster. <laughs> I'm on Facebook and Twitter at the real Jeff Corbett, although I, I don't I don't I I had a heart attack in uh when oh this goodness. whole lockdown started. Yeah, just the sort of gen bad genes. Because I'm in shape. And social media, I think it's been part of the cause of my heart attack because I sit there and I just get so mad, you know, these days. It's really tough, especially in the last 72 hours, seeing all this stuff in Minnesota and the, the fact that we're still dealing with the stuff we're still dealing with in this country. Uh, really sad. So I my wife says, turn, don't watch the TV news. Why don't I want to take you to the emergency room again oh. for another heart attack? And and reading and looking at social media, like sometimes. Well, thank you for helping us engender a more positive feeling through your memories of quantum. Well, we're all going to get through this together, and mm -hmm. not just this pandemic, but this as a nation, baby. You know, it's kind of the whole concept of America's e pluribus unum, you know, from mm -hmm. many, one. So we better figure it out and find again that common ground in our love for one another and our nation and compromise our entire government was built on compromise it's not a dirty word compromise <laughs> is a good thing i do it every day i'm married <laughs> <laughs> well jeff it has been a pleasure thank you so much for sharing your memories with us any parting words for uh, our listeners peace and love quote Ringo Starr <laughs> thank you Jeff for appearing on the Quantum Leap podcast see ya
was great stuff, great Chris. interview. He was a lot of fun to talk to. I, I got to be honest. I'm, he sounded it. Yeah, sometimes I get nervous because I feel like <laughs> we're asking these people to recount one week of their life from 30 years ago. And I just think like, oh, they're so gracious to talk to us. I hope I can, you know, make it worth their time. But the thing is like, then you get to talk to someone like Jeff Corbett, who is just so genuine and he just so much fun. And he had such fond reminiscences about working on the set. I mean, it was a special time in his life and it affected him greatly. And like the, just the sincerity really comes through. So thank you so much, Jeff. I had a blast talking to you and uh, yeah, cool dude. Really cool dude. Uh, I saw the video version, and he had a really cool beard. <laughs> I just want to say, a suave-looking guy. It's funny. One of the key things that Jeff mentioned in his interview was the importance of persistence and, I guess, doggedness when it comes to an acting career. And and I got to tell you, it seems like Roddy McDowell might have written the book on that. As promised, here is our Roddy retrospective from Zoe Dean. Roddy McDowell was born Roderick Andrew Anthony Jude McDowell in the Beulah Hill region of South London on September 17, 1928. His parents were a 32-year-old Scotsman and World War I veteran, Thomas Andrew McDowell, and a 29-year-old Irish girl, Winifred Corcoran McDowell. They already had one child, a daughter, Virginia Grace, born on September 23, 1927. Winifred McDowell was a star-struck, aspiring actress who had never made it to the stardom she intensely desired for herself and hoped to create big futures for her two adorable children. Noticing that they were shy, Winifred enrolled Roddy and Virginia in elocution classes and started them acting in plays. And when they started winning drama trophies and people kept telling her that they were absolutely adorable and should be in the movies, Winifred set herself the task of bringing it about. My mother had complete control over us, Roddy said later in life. She would make all the decisions and pretend that my sister and I were making them. As a young boy, Roddy was often praised for his impeccable manners and extensive vocabulary. Even then, he was very well-spoken and seemed adult in many ways. In 1937, after a few inevitable false starts and disappointments, Roddy was signed with his first agent and began getting small roles in an occasional movie. Due to the child labor laws of the late 1930s, however, he was often sneaked into the studios around London while crouched on the floor of the automobile as it passed through the gates. In some films, he was only an extra, something Winifred would never admit. But he had good roles in Just William, 1939, as Ginger, You Will Remember, 1940, and This England, 1941. He also did modeling and advertising spots. Most notably, he did magazine ads for Purcell, a popular detergent still being made today, and for various breakfast cereals. In 1939, World War II began, when Roddy was only 11 years old. After the Nazi bombings of London began, Roddy collected shrapnel and other relics. His parents had a hard time keeping him inside during the air raids because he was so curious and interested in watching things from the yard. The family often crouched in a cupboard below the stairs during air raids when they were at home, and Virginia recounted many times that she and Roddy had to sleep there in order to remain safe. One day during the Blitz, their home was hit by bombs, and one fell through the bathroom roof. It was at this point that his father made the decision to have his wife and children immigrate to the United States for their own safety, and Thomas McDowell enlisted in the war effort. The day finally came for them to leave, and Roddy had to say goodbye to his father on the Liverpool docks. He understood, tacitly anyway, 
that he would now be the man of the family while Tom served in the Merchant Marines, and took his new role in life very seriously. During the trip over the Atlantic, Wynne decided to take advantage of her adorable children's talent for performing and put on a production of Puck and the Fairy aboard ship one night in order to stave off boredom for her children and the other passengers on board. Virginia mentioned in Roddy's A&D biography that, quote, Mother just happened to have the costumes with her. In September of 1941, they arrived in New York, having only $42 with them, as this was all the British government allowed them to take out of the country, and within two weeks, Roddy had an American agent. My mother contacted agents, Roddy said, one of whom sent me to the MGM office to test for the yearling. They said that I was too English, but that at 20th Century Fox, they were looking for a child for how green was my valley. After receiving this tip, Winifred rushed her son to the location given them by the agent, and although Roddy was thoroughly exhausted, he read very well and impressed those who auditioned him. Two or three days later, he was asked to make a screen test at the 20th Century Fox Studios on 56th Street. After this was done, Roddy, Wynne, and V took a trip to Washington, D.C. to visit Wynne's brother. While in D.C., but before they had time to do much sightseeing, they got a telegram from Fox telling them Roddy was wanted to do another screen test for the film, and they were to come back to California. Roddy, Wynne, and V were put up by the studio at the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and Roddy did the second screen test for John Ford and Daryl F. Zanuck. Roddy got the part of Hugh, and was given a contract at Fox. The McDowells now had to find permanent accommodations. Roddy was almost immediately put to work, and the family bought a house on Dunlear Drive in the Cheviot Hills area of Los Angeles. His first film was Manhunt, in which he played a ship's cabin boy, Vayner, who helps hide Walter Pigeon's character from his Nazi enemies. He next did Confirm or Deny. These small roles, though his part as Albert Perkins and Confirm or Deny was considerably larger than that of Vayner and Manhunt, took up his time before How Green Was My Valley went into production in June of 1941. The film had a good deal of trouble getting off the ground, but once it reached its completion and was released, it was a smash hit. Roddy reached instant stardom and continued working steadily for Fox for the next five years. But once the actor hit puberty and began growing into manhood, the studio no longer felt that he was marketable material, and his agent soon informed 17-year-old Roddy that he had outgrown the movies and would never work again, because he wasn't cute anymore. Roddy was heartbroken, and determined to prove his agent wrong, took every acting job made available to him, but was frustrated by the fact that he was repeatedly being made to play awkward adolescents. Now nearly 18, Roddy wanted roles with more meat. In an effort to help her son, Wynne negotiated with Fox to release Roddy from his contract. She was successful, but she didn't realize that she had now caused a major problem for her son. He was now out of work and didn't know how to continue being the family's principal breadwinner. No other major studio would hire him, feeling he was too awkward and gawky-looking to be fitting for a leading role. He managed to get a contract with a third-rate studio called Monogram, a part of Hollywood's infamous Poverty Row, and would make several films during the next five years with them, most notably Tuna Clipper and Killer Shark. There was not enough money. Who was going to do the work? I had no money, Roddy commented. Though I had made over 100000 a year, had my father not been so mesmerized by my mother, I would have had every dime I ever made. 
My father was scrupulously honest, but mother had such control over him that he was powerless. Roddy hated all of the films he did for Monogram, but later felt hopeful when Kidnapped began production. Now 20 years old, and working as the youngest executive producer in history for the studio, he felt the film might be a promising one, and cast his mother as the innkeeper in the movie. Roddy's high hopes were dashed, however, as Kidnapped didn't turn out so well because of the shoestring budget allowed for it. But he was later able to get work with Orson Welles in his stage production of Macbeth, and then later reprised his role as Malcolm Macduff in the film in 1948. The next two years of difficulty and struggle snailed by, and Roddy became more and more frustrated. He had no life of his own. His mother was controlling every aspect of his life, and he was becoming more and more concerned for his future. Roddy's friend Jane Powell later described Winifred McDowell as, quote, a classic stage mother. I realized it was terribly important for Roddy to get away from home. She was destroying him as a man, as a person, and as a talent. The whole family was under her thumb. Every time the family didn't do what she wanted, she'd feign a heart attack. By 1950, Roddy left Monogram. The time had come to move forward alone. And in 1951, Roddy, now 22 years old, moved to New York City. Though he felt incredibly guilty about this decision, Roddy knew he needed to get away from his mother and Hollywood in order to find himself and discover what he really wanted to do with his life. He thought he wanted to be a character actor, but wondered if he could be successful, as he felt that he didn't know how to act very well. But acting was something he loved, and therefore wished to learn how to do it better. Since he had long had photography as a hobby, so much so that it was an expensive one, he started investigating the possibility of becoming a professional photographer. While searching for information regarding this idea, he got a call from a man at the lab, where he'd been sending his pictures for development. The man told him that he had a good eye and should not be sending his pictures there to be processed. Roddy went to meet the man and then worked for six months in the darkroom at the lab, learning how to do everything. At some point during his training, he had an allergic reaction to the chemicals, but persisted, despite his discomfort. Later on, he learned a lot from talking with Richard Avedon and Elliot Elisifan, observing and studying their pictures. While studying photography, Roddy also studied acting under such luminaries as Mira Rostova and Bobby Lewis, meanwhile working steadily in theater productions both on and off Broadway. He also began acting in television from 1951 to 1954, and steadily began appearing in one television show per year. Soon he graduated from his schooling on his craft, and began working more steadily in television, but still working consistently on stage. His stage credits during the years of 1950 to 1960 are staggering as he worked in 23 productions during this 10-year period. He began gaining critical acclaim and adulation for his stage work when he starred as Bentley Summerhays in George Bernard Shaw's Misalliance in 1953 on Broadway. The reviews of his performance were superb, and led to his being cast in The Tempest by the American Shakespeare Festival, where he played Ariel the Sprite and later Octavian in Julius Caesar. Soon, word spread like wildfire of Roddy's dramatic capabilities, and in 1957, Roddy was cast as Artie Strauss in the controversial drama Compulsion, based upon the infamous Leopold and Loeb murder trial. In 1960, Roddy's work in theater gained him two prestigious awards for Best Supporting Actor, a Tony for the stage production of The Fighting Cock, where he starred alongside Rex Harrison, 
and an Emmy for his performance in the NBC production of Not Without Honor. In the fall, he became a part of the production of Camelot, alongside Julie Andrews and Richard Burton, playing the evil Sir Mordred. The play was a success, and Roddy was now finding himself a celebrated performer in television and on stage. He was now ready to return to Hollywood and take up where he had left off. In 1961, Roddy was asked to reprise his role as Octavian in 20th Century Fox's upcoming production of Cleopatra, where he would be working once again with Richard Burton and Rex Harrison. He agreed, but the production was fraught with problems, which kept many of the main characters, including its star, Roddy's best friend Elizabeth Taylor, out of work and lying around on the set waiting to be used in a scene. This resulted in Roddy and Richard Burton, who was also a close friend of Roddy's, being given cameo roles in The Longest Day in order to stave off boredom. Finally, Cleopatra wrapped and hit theaters in 1963 after being in production for over two years. Roddy's role as Octavian, though only a supporting role, gained him the attention of the Academy, and he was nominated for an Oscar for his performance. Unfortunately, a careless clerical error cost him his award. He received nothing more from the Academy than a lazy written letter of apology for the mistake and was never given an opportunity to win an Oscar again. Fans at the time, and to this very day, still feel this was a grave injustice deliberately committed against him. Roddy was disappointed by the loss of this major award, but as was characteristic of his nature, he remained stoically silent about the incident and never spoke about it publicly. Through the 1960s, Roddy worked steadily in movies and television, appearing on average in five to seven films and one to two television performances each year, with 1961 being an exception due to the holdup with Cleopatra. Behind the camera all these years, Roddy had been snapping pictures wherever he went and gathered up an extensive collection of photographs of his friends and other celebrities he was asked to photograph. And when Roddy sold a picture he had taken of Judy Holliday to Vogue magazine in 1960, he was able to gain a career as a professional photographer, working for some of the country's most respected magazines. In 1966, Roddy compiled a collection of the photographs he had taken over the years of Hollywood's most notably celebrated names and published them in a series of four coffee table books, which he called Double Exposure. Roddy was now not only a celebrated actor, but a well-known and highly respected photographer, and had finally found true happiness for himself and his career. He now only had one dream left to achieve, to be a director. In 1968, Roddy found unbridled success once again, when he took on the role of an ape called Cornelius in the first installment of the Planet of the Apes saga. Playing alongside Charlton Heston, Roddy's character was a scientist in a post-apocalyptic Earth that has been completely turned upside down. The roles in society are reversed, and apes are now in complete control, while humans are kept in cages and are used as slaves and pets, and are experimented on in medical and scientific research. In this Earth, the humans are incapable of speech, are non-intelligent, and are seen the way animals are seen in a zoo. But when three astronauts crash land on the planet, Cornelius and his fiancée Zira soon learn that the future holds something different for ape-kind. Siding with Heston's character of Taylor, Cornelius and Zira are accused of heresy and deposed from their positions of prominence. 
The movie was a smash hit, and Roddy was soon asked to return for the sequel, Beneath the Planet of the Apes. But at this point, he had begun production on his first directorial project, The Ballad of Tam Lin, starring Ava Gardner and then-newcomer Ian McShane, and he was unavailable to reprise the role of Cornelius. He was therefore temporarily replaced for the second film, and he carried on with fulfilling his dream of being a director. Tam Lin was a labor of love for Roddy. He created it with Ava Gardner in mind. Gardner was an actress Roddy both revered and worshipped, and he tailor-made the role of Michaela Kazaret, or Mickey, for her. But the production ran out of money, and Roddy was not able to make it to the full scale he had originally desired. The film wasn't horribly affected, however, and Roddy was able to sell it to American International Studios. This was a mistake, however, which Roddy learned far too late, as American International was a studio notorious for screwing over its clients. Without Roddy's knowledge or permission, AI cut the film to pieces and released it under the alternate title of The Devil's Widow in an attempt to make it a horror film. Roddy was outraged and attempted to have his name removed from the opening credits, but failed. Subsequently, when the butchered film did badly at the box office, it wasn't American International that received the criticism, but McDowell himself. Again, as was usual of his character, Roddy remained publicly silent about the disappointment, but he never directed again. In 1971, Roddy was able to return to the Planet of the Apes franchise, and finally reprised his role as Cornelius in Escape from the Planet of the Apes. And in 1972, he returned again to play Caesar, the son of Cornelius and Zira, who had sacrificed themselves to ensure their baby could live. And finally, in 1973, he returned to play Caesar again in the final installment of the five-movie saga. But that wasn't the end of Planet of the Apes. The movies were wildly successful, which sparked interest in the creation of a television series. Once again, Roddy was cast in a leading role, this time playing Galen, an assistant to Dr. Zaius who becomes a fugitive while helping two astronauts in their journey to return home. The show was mildly successful in America, but lacked the steam and creative talent it needed to keep the storyline fresh and consistent, and it was cancelled after 14 episodes. Shortly after, it found new life in Britain, and now, because of its British resurgence, is available on DVD worldwide. The early demise of the Planet of the Apes television series was no big deal for Roddy, however, and he continued working steadily throughout the remainder of the 1970s, working in a melting pot of various projects, many of which kept recycling around the premise of science fiction. The 1980s brought the same for Roddy, working in television and films and still cranking out up to a total of nine projects each year. In 1982, he became involved in another soon-to-be-aborted TV series called Tales of the Gold Monkey, which was created by Donald P. Belisario. The series didn't do very well, lasting for only 22 episodes, but it became a fan classic and is available on DVD today. By the late 1980s, Roddy began another side career, lending his unique speaking voice as the narrator for audiobooks. He also began working in a plethora of children's animated cartoons, lending his voice to characters in series such as Superman, Batman the Animated Series, where he played Jarvis Tetch, a.k.a. the Mad Hatter, one of the Joker's many Arkham Asylum sidekicks, 
He also did a few episodes in the popular children's series Pinky and the Brain, where he voiced a gerbil called Snowball, whose sole ambition in life is to beat the brain in his plans to take over the world. In 1987, Roddy released his second installment of photography books, Double Exposure Take Two, which received great acclaim. Later that year, he again put on his executive producer's hat and worked alongside Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell in the screwball comedy Overboard. In the 1990s, Roddy began working most steadily in made-for-TV movies and cartoon voiceover work. He still did regular films also and continued with his photography projects. Double Exposure Takes Three and Four were released in 1992 and 1993. Also in 1992, Donald P. Belisario contacted Roddy again to do a guest appearance on his new and successful series, Quantum Leap, where he was to play semi-alongside longtime friend and fellow child star Dean Stockwell. Roddy played a character called Edward Sinchin V and was to be a replacement for Dean's character of Al Calavici in an alternate timeline. This occurs when Sam, played by Scott Bakula, who has leaped into his friend, almost fails in his attempt to prevent Al from being sent to the gas chamber after he's wrongfully accused of murder. Roddy appears in a few scenes holding Al's gummy bear mimicking hand link, communicating to the parallel hybrid replacement for Ziggy called Alpha. He successfully helps Sam prevent Al's death in the gas chamber and disappears without a wink or a goodbye, and the episode comes to a happy end. Unfortunately, this left us Roddy fans sighing with disappointment that we wouldn't get to see our favorite person again, despite our being thrilled for Al's ensured safety in the episode. In April of 1998, Roddy, who had been smoking since his late teens, was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer and was given only six months to live. Despite this horrible news, Roddy continued doing what he loved best, working, and kept taking on roles in TV, film, voiceovers, and on stage. His final stage performance was as Ebenezer Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, a role in which he alternated with another actor, Hal Linden. The production ran from November 18, 1997 to January 4, 1998. In 1997, Roddy learned that his film, The Ballad of Tam Lin, was in talks to be released on videotape for the first time. Eager to see his film released the way he had intended, he conducted an exhaustive and extensive search for the original negatives that had ended up on American International's cutting room floor. His search was successful, and he was able to edit the film the way he had originally intended to. It was released on videotape later that year, and has since been transferred to DVD. Roddy's edit of the film can easily be found under the name The Ballad of Tam Lin, whereas copies of American International's Disaster are still found under the name The Devil's Widow. Despite his difficulties, Roddy was able to win the battle for his film in the end. Roddy's final television performance was voicing Dr. Hugh Trevor in the episode Deadlock on Godzilla the Animated Series. The episode aired on February 6, 1999. Roddy died on October 3, 1998. During his lifetime, Roddy McDowell worked in 36 stage performances, 262 total film and television performances, 114 appearances as himself on television in interviews, narrations for biographies and appearances in game shows, seven executive producer's credits, one director's credit, four soundtrack contributions, one camera and electrical department credit for his work on That's Entertainment 3, seven credits of thanks for work on documentaries, 
the documentary on Cleopatra was dedicated to his memory. 40 audiobooks, 6 recorded songs for musical productions, 38 radio appearances, and countless photographic contributions to various forms of print, film, and television. Thank you to Julie Carricker for helping me write this biography. Without your extensive knowledge, I would have some massive gaps in the bio. Thank you. Wow. Quite a Roddy deep dive, and great job, Zoe. Thanks a lot. If you're like Zoe and you love Roddy McDowell, you can hear more great stuff like this on her podcast, All About Roddy McDowell. It's called Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. Just look for it on your favorite podcatcher. Do a search, and you should be able to find it. Find it, download it, listen to it. You'll love it. And if you want to tell us what you think of this episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast, there are many ways you can reach us. You can get us by phone at 707-847-6682. You can email us at quantumleappodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash quantumleappodcast. You can hit us up on Twitter and Instagram at quantumleappod. And you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. Just remember that we may use your response in an upcoming episode of the Quantum Leap Podcast. And speaking of upcoming episodes, Matt, what's next? We are going to be kicking things up a notch next time, and I'm not just talking about the theme tune. Although, yes, I'm talking about the theme tune. Uh, it's Lee Harvey Oswald and Season 5... Lee, look, smile. Oh boy. Oh man, I love that theme tune. Uh, I can't wait to change up the theme tune to the podcast. It's going to be nuts. <laughs> I'm so glad we get the proper theme tune at last. <laughs> I have a friend who uh, I was showing random episodes of Quantum Leap to. She's never seen all of it. And uh, whenever we watch a season five episode, she's like, yes, season five theme. <laughs> yeah. I had a, uh, I think it was Laura's cousin describe the season five theme perfectly. It's as if they gave an arrangement to a high school band and they weren't allowed to cut anybody <laughs> from playing their instrument. <laughs> <laughs> I read that was uh, that was Scott Bakula's idea, too. Yeah. I was like, yeah, let's change it up. As if Lee Harvey Oswald wasn't controversial enough, they bring it to you with a zippy new theme. Souped up Quantum Leap. Guys, I can't wait to talk about Lee Harvey Oswald, and it's not so much the Quantum Leap thing, even though it is that, but um, as you guys both know, and as many listeners might know, I did an entire podcast years ago about 112263, which was the Stephen King book in which a time traveler goes to prevent the Kennedy assassination. And because of that, I became an unwitting student of everything JFK related and all about the assassination to the point where... Our final episode of that show was me and Albie and Skipper live in Dealey Plaza. I mean, I've been up to the sixth floor museum. I've seen the sniper's nest. I've seen where Oswald, you know, was looking down the street. I have a ton of stories and I'm going to have a lot to say about many a thing. Yeah, if we think if we if we think we went on on this one, <laughs> it's probably going to be a, a long episode, Lee Harvey Oswald. 
and not to mention the fact it's a double long episode. I don't think we've covered a double long episode uh, since we've been on the podcast. The last one, I think, was the, the pilot, and we didn't talk about that. No, that, that torn us, torn us. So, yeah, this is going to be an experience. So everybody strap in. We're going to go to Crazy Town and uh, see what the conspiracy theorists are saying and um, how it's being refuted. Until then, I have been Christopher DeFilippis. I've been Alison Pregler. And I've been Matt Dale. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll see you next time. (laughs) That was my Al. Is that any good? (laughs) Yeah. I'm sorry, that was my young Al. (laughs) (laughs) Spot on, spot on. It's me, young Al, and it's me, old Al. (laughs) (laughs) Together, we're a comedy team. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Quantum Leap podcast, hosted by Allison, Matt, and Chris with voice talent and contributions from Hayden McQueenie and Zoe Dean. Visit us at quantumleappodcast.com. To support the show, please go to patreon.com slash quantumleappodcast. The Quantum Leap Podcast is edited by Albie, Christopher DeFilippis, and Allison Pregler. The executive producer of the Quantum Leap Podcast is Albert Burge. Christopher DeFilippis and Hayden McQueenie are the co-executive producers. Morgan Felden is the producer. The thoughts expressed on this podcast are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those of the Quantum Leap podcast, its partners, or affiliates. The Quantum Leap universe and all it contains is the property of Belisarius Productions and Universal Television. The Quantum Leap podcast is not affiliated with Belisarius Productions or Universal Television, and no copyright infringement is intended. Please visit barrenspace.com for this and other amazing content. The Quantum Leap Podcast is a Baron Space production. Here, I'll start recording in case anything funny comes up. (laughs) No, now we're all self-conscious. It's just not going to (laughs) happen. We could have more discussions Um, about soda and pop and... (laughs) (laughs) Sody pop itself. Matt, do you have, like, like regional uh, different ways of saying soda over there? Or has it always just been soda or... I think we pretty much just name the stuff we're drinking. I guess I guess you you might say fizzy drink as a as a, gen, a generic term, but most people would just say I want a coke or I want a lemonade. We don't really say soda or pop. Or oh my whatever. god, yeah, lemonade's fizzy drinks over there. That's so weird to me. <laughs> Your lemonade is carbonated, sir. Yeah, yeah. Hello. You there? Hello, Matt. Are you there? We lost. He's, Matt. He went to go get a fizzy lemon drink. <laughs> <laughs> He floated away, had too much fizzy lifting drink. Yeah. <laughs> you get nothing. Good day. <laughs> <laughs> Matt, I don't know where you are, but we're sure having a laugh at your expense. <laughs>